Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by JetRide Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 97 of Australia's premier aviation show. On a stinking hot night here in Melbourne, Australia, boy, according to the news, you'd think the world's coming to an end. I'm Steve Vischer, and sweating it out over on the other side of the city, it's Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you going? Oh, not too bad. I tell you what, I was watching Channel 9 News tonight. We've had one day of hot weather, and you'd think the world was ending. Oh, mate, have they brought out the uh, global warming stats? Oh, I don't know. I usually switch off when they do that, as you well know. <laughs> I know. I just thought I'd throw it out and see if you'd rise to the bait. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what did come to an end. Melbourne's rail system, because, you know, it got one degree over 30 and everything stopped. Yeah, what, they melted? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, everything stopped today. So it wasn't oh, my fault, yeah. folks. I was ready to run, ready to run, but uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, no uh-huh. train turned up. So what could I do? Oh, you could just stand there and swelter. Yeah, so it wasn't nearly as much fun as my recent trip up to RAF Base Richmond, I might tell you. Oh, really? And why is that? Uh, yes, uh, a little ride on a Hercules there mate we won't be uh, putting any of those interviews in this show because we've still got a few more to collect but uh, boy bumpy ride interesting experience and uh, I know we've uh, I'll only mention it here because we've been plastering it all over our social media feeds boy what an experience and uh, we did collect uh, a number of interviews up there Grant uh, was actually at the base a few days later and uh, he's uh, scored another one as well and uh, we just got one more that we want to record and uh, then we'll have that content out uh, but it won't be in this episode yeah no Steve's still still too busy trying to recover from his ride in Hercules he's smiling too much you can tell in the way he's speaking it was awesome I should uh, gloat a little bit about the wonderful approach I shot into Queenstown, New Zealand on the sim. I'll Is this before or after you talk about the one that you stuffed up into Sydney? Yes, well, you know, baby steps, mate, baby steps. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, at least you're on the flight deck uh, enjoying the view from up there as you went down the harbour. Yes, exactly. It was awesome. But for those of you who are waiting on that content, uh, just a little bit of patience, folks. We just want to uh, get one more interview and uh, then we'll have that one uh, ready to come. But coming up in this episode, uh, Kathy Mexted is going to join us a little bit later. Uh, she's been up doing some aerobatics down there at Bowen Heads in a Nanchang and uh, she survived Excellent. it. Yep, and, uh, did a really good job and uh, recorded a great interview there with the uh, the chief pilot. That's uh, Anatole Mills. Also, Grant, you've been talking to a helicopter pilot. That's right, mate. Uh, we went for a, a bit of a fly together. Basically, I was uh, part of the team on board the helicopter for the photo shoot of a new balloon we were launching over Melbourne, a brand new passenger balloon. So uh, get the chopper out, get some stills and videos for the client and for ourselves. Uh, so we had a great one-hour flight uh, over Melbourne and uh, spent a lot of time going round and round in circles around the balloon, getting some great shots and uh, also a bit of hovering and backing up and all this kind of stuff. And apparently uh, people were calling up Radio 3AW talking about this helicopter that was trying to rescue people from a balloon in flight. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Talkback radio, mate. Love it. Love it, love it. I wish I'd got a recording of that one. Oh, mate, actually, I probably should check with some of the media monitors I know and see if any of them have got a recording of that. I'd, I'd love to hear the whole thing, but I was too busy having fun after the flight. Yeah, grab that one, mate, and we'll put it in the outtakes. There you go. 
And, of course, we'll have some listener mail and some shout-outs coming up as well, some uh, rather entertaining uh, emails we've had coming in, and uh, none of them abusing us, so we're happy to read them out. Fantastic. But before all that, we've got a uh, very special guest with us this evening. Now, of course, uh, anyone that listens to the program will know that uh, Grant and I are always very big reps for Australian Aviation Magazine, and with good reason, and I'm sure that uh, most of our listeners are probably uh, subscribers or purchasers of that magazine. With that in mind, it's a great pleasure to welcome the former uh, Deputy Editor of Australian Aviation Magazine to the show, Andrew McLaughlin. G'day, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, guys. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for spending some time with us. We really do appreciate it. Um, you've been laying low lately, but uh, Australian Aviation Magazine has certainly uh, been a, a major factor in your life and uh, up until recently, I guess, uh, took up a, a very prominent role. It certainly did, yeah. I, uh, I started writing freelance for the magazine back in 98, so um, yeah, had 14 years at the magazine. So maybe if we could go back and talk about because I mean Grant and I are huge fans of Australian Aviation Magazine and uh, oh it's great and I just don't say this because you work for it I I really have have said for a long time that I regard it as one of the top aviation magazines in the world can you talk about uh, perhaps what you brought to the role uh, starting as a freelancer and and perhaps uh, how things progressed over the time you were there yeah sure well, my my trade is actually in hospitality I, I started out in hotels in the eighties and sort of worked up to a position where I sort of had to decide whether I wanted to progress in that and end up moving the family all around the world or whether I wanted to, I guess, just uh, chase my passion, which was aviation. So in the mid-90s, I actually heard a radio interview one night with uh, a, re- a now retired Air Vice Marshal who was at the time Deputy Chief of Air Staff and uh, he had jumped out of an F-111 in New Zealand many years ago and he was actually being interviewed late one night about that. And that kind of sparked my interest in um, maybe writing a story about that. So I actually contacted him the next day and... Uh, he was quite happy to talk to me and I uh, went in and met him and through him, that, that initial contact, I, I sort of started developing a network within the Air Force of initially, you know, professional contacts, but a lot of them have since become friends. And um, so I, I thought I'd write a, a book and uh, that became difficult because it was very, very hard to get publishers interested. Uh, they all said, get published first. And I said, well, that's what I'm trying to do. And <laughs> it's, it's always the, uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, so I actually contacted Jim Thorne, who at the time owned Australian Aviation and who had started that in 1977. And uh, I said, look, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. Uh, is it possible to maybe write a few articles for the magazine to get my name in the system, so to speak, to prove that I can get work published so that that might then give me a bit more credibility with the book? And uh, he was quite happy for me to do that. So uh, the April 1998 issue was my first article. It was a one-pager about uh, the United States Air Force detachment that they had at the time at Richmond Air Force Base in Sydney. Uh, they used to service the, uh, the galaxies and the starlishes that came through there at the time. Yeah, it's okay. interesting, isn't it, how the U.S. Air Force, they uh, they seem to come and go, and I think, you know, the, def- the U.S. Uh, Defence Forces are sort of uh, starting to step it up again here in Australia, so it's certainly an important uh, alliance that we have, and it's uh, it always generates a lot of uh, really good news stories, aviation-wise. It certainly does. You know, that, at the time, that they actually had 11 or 12 guys permanently based at Richmond, and they used to service the flights that came through, and those flights would look after the embassy in Canberra, the consulate in Sydney, and I think... You know, Pine Gap and other installations. That's since uh, backed right off. I think there's only one C-17 a week, and they've actually privatised that that role. I think I don't think there's an actual USF detachment there anymore. But uh, yeah, it certainly uh, they had a big presence here at, the, at that time. Yeah, no, I imagine some of them might have been going down to McMurdo as well. Um, no, they actually went through Christchurch, I believe. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was also I wasn't sure if all traffic went through Christchurch or if some went through there and some through us. Yeah, most of it went through Christchurch. You may remember that um, Operation Deep Freeze many, many years ago where there was a US scientist who was actually down at, um, 
I can't remember if it was at, at McMurdo or at the South Pole, and uh, she, she found that she had breast cancer, and it was the middle of winter, so they couldn't fly her out. And so they actually uh, airdropped in uh, some equipment, and she, was, she actually operated on herself. She was a doctor. Um, yeah, and no, um, yeah. that, that staged initially through Richmond, but they, they went through Christchurch on the way down, and then the crew came back through Richmond on their way back to the US, and I got to interview the crew at the time and uh, write a story about it. I think that was well, mid to late 99 from memory. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. So you started with uh, covering that basic story, and it went on, as you say, for 14 years. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, initially it was freelance because I was still working in hotels, and and uh, it was it was a, you know, an article every couple of issues, and then gradually that built up to an article every issue, and then a couple of articles every issue, and then in about '03 I made the decision that I'd gone as far as I wanted to go in hotels, uh, so I decided to go full time freelance, and and so. I was primarily working for Australian Aviation. Um, I had the odd, odd article in uh, Air International in the UK, uh, and also with um, uh, it's now called Defence Today. It's uh, that quarterly magazine based out of Amberley, okay, uh, with strike publications. And I, I did a few articles for uh, John Armstrong there at, at that magazine. Now you talk about Jim Thorne, of course, uh, a legendary writer in Australian aviation media. And I might tell you, I, I remember many years ago uh, enjoying a novel he wrote, I think called uh, Falklands Two. Yep. Yep. Now, I think Jim's retired, hasn't he? He has. He, he When he sold the magazine to, to myself uh, and my two partners in uh, early 05, he retired. Um, I think he spends half his time in New Zealand and the other half of the time on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Fantastic. That's somebody we ought to catch up with one day, Grant. Yeah, I think well, so. he, he, yeah he's always good for a story, that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, as you say, you, you got together with a group of uh, partners there and ended up, uh, as they say, buying the company. Yeah, um, Jared Frawley, who had been editor of Australian Aviation since the early 90s, um, uh, and and Leanne Sim, who had basically got a job there initially just as an office assistant straight out of school and gradually moved up to, I think she was doing the advertising at the time, uh, the three of us bought Jim out. Um, I, I had the minority share and, and the other two guys had the majority shares, but uh, yeah, it was basically a management buyout. Um, Jim was quite happy to to uh, pass it on to us and um, yeah, so we bought it lock, stock and barrel and we formed, we formed a new owning company because Jim owned what they called Aerospace Publications and we formed Phantom Media, which then bought the magazine off Jim because we couldn't buy Aerospace Publications off Jim. Long story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they're normally convoluted, aren't they? Yeah, they are. It's just the Companies Act and things like that. It was just much easier for us to set up our own company and then buy the magazine. So did you have any ideas on, on perhaps uh, how you might have changed the, the magazine? I mean, when you, you sort of look at it over time, it's, it's sometimes difficult to pick up, uh, you know, little changes here and there. You know, did you, you sort of tended to keep the same sort of format and, and sort of kept it very technical and sort of pointed directly at the niche, I guess? Well, well I mean, physically we did, we did launch with a new format. The format that Jim uh, finished up with had been very similar for about 10 years. Um, so we just simplified it, cleaned it up. Paul Sadler, who came on board with us as our photographer slash designer at the time, um, he, he did a really good job. And, and uh, also Jared's brother, who um, is a graphic designer. Between the, the three of them, they, they cleaned the design up quite significantly and made, made it a lot more readable, different fonts and um, uh, just different colours. Um, even down to the cover, we had the pictures going right to the edge instead of having like a frame around the pictures on the cover, yep. which just, just cleaned it up a little bit. As for the content, we, we pretty much kept it, you know, the same sort of thing. We tried to cover all the genres of aviation. Uh, we, we, a couple of writers didn't stay with us um, for various reasons. Uh, we got a couple of new writers in, um, some of whom you know, like Owen Zupp, um, who, I, who I believe you've interviewed a couple of times now. 
Yep. Um, one, of, one of the best, country's best ride, technical writers, I believe. And uh, he came on board about three years after we bought the magazine and has been indispensable since then. So, yeah, it's been more evolutionary, I guess, than a revolutionary change. You know, it's one of those, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it too much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Here's a question. What happened to On the Airbands? That was one of my favourites. Uh, well, we found that the guy that was writing it was starting to recycle a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's harder and harder now to actually monitor the airways and, and get good stuff because a lot, a lot of the good stuff is actually done on ACARS now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and you're not technically allowed to publish that stuff, even though I know it does pop up on the Sydney message board occasionally and other stuff. But um, so we found that it was just finding harder and harder to get new material. And uh, Bob Bell, who was writing it, had other interests. And, and so it was it was sort of a mutual agreement on us to, to shut that down. It seems like the, the world, you know, in, in particularly um, you know, journalism, is, is, is changing. It's evolving very quickly with technology. It's obviously something that responds very quickly to technology. I guess that means that... Uh, by comparison to when you started out with Australian Aviation to the current times, things, you know, the news tends to come in and out a lot quicker. How does the magazine cope with, you know, with a larger volume of information coming through like that? Yeah, you're right. And um, that, that's been one of the difficulties that we faced. And um, I, I mean, I, I haven't been with the magazine now for over six months, but, um, you know, certainly up to a year ago, we, we found that our, our our print sales were dropping off, you know, just a few percentage points every year, um, not, not significantly and not you couldn't nail it down to anyone area. Obviously, the GFC we, we took a bit of a hit there because people's discretionary spending was down. So, you know, news agent sales especially were quite low. Uh, so, yeah, you've got to evolve. You've, you, people want news now. They don't want to read it in a month's time when the next magazine comes out. So the, you may have noticed the news desk section of the magazine shrunk. Um, it, it used to be, you know, upwards of 20 pages. Now it's rarely more than 10. Yep. Uh, and, and we usually only do the big ticket items in the, in the news desk. Um, rather than every little item. Uh, and then we tend to add a little bit more value to those items in the magazine in terms of doing a one-pager. There's a lot more up, what they, we call update columns now. Whereas a, a story may have been 100 or 200 words, which is two or three paragraphs um, online, we'll then expand that out because over a period of a month, that story may evolve. So you just, you just flesh it out, get a, get a few quotes in there, a bit, bit of background context, turn it into a one-pager gives a bit more value to the reader rather than the, the one paragraph thing that you may have put online. Well, that's that's exactly uh, right. I mean, to be yeah. very honest, I, I find myself in most magazines, aviation ones, even the ones that I'm subscribed to and they arrive before they hit the newsstand, mm. I'm flicking over the news uh, sections going, yeah, yeah, I've already read all that, read all that, seen mm. that, heard that. Oh, that's different. Okay, cool. Yep. Nice photo. Flick, flick. You know, that kind of thing. It's yep. it's almost to the point now where you could take it out or, as you're saying, give a big value add and really expand on it with more background or overview. It's it, it, The times have changed. Yeah, it has. You're right. I mean, and, and, and you, we talked, I talked about the online product. We, Jim had actually foreseen this in, in 2003, and that's when I actually decided to go full-time. He, he started what we called at the time Australian Aviation Express, which was the online product. And basically, that would be a mail-out once a week at the time. Yep. Um, and then when we took over Phantom Media, we took that one step further, started at the website, and actually had stuff up pretty much in real time. Um, and I think um, that that bore fruit, um, I want to say it was 2005, not long after we, we did Phantom Media, I was actually in Toulouse on an Airbus media trip and um, we were about to go out to dinner and, and they hustled us all in this little theatrette and the, the head of Airbus at the time announced a further delay to the, the A380. I think it was supposed to fly. It was supposed to enter service at the end of 05, and he announced a slip for a 12-month slip. Now it was eight o'clock at night in, in Toulouse, um, and 
everyone else then went off to dinner and I basically went straight back to the hotel, filed it and we had it up on the website in a couple of hours So, because um, it was uh, early morning here. Yep. So I think we may have broken the story worldwide on that. So it was a fortunate timing, but that's the power of online media and so many other news outlets actually picked up our story, which was great. And w- one of the things that's uh, really brought on in a big way these days, we find now, and of course we, we've only been doing this for four years, but when you're dealing with airlines or when you're dealing with defence, you know, they've, they've got people there now that, and I guess this was the case back then, but they seem to be coming to prominence now, and that's, for want of a better word, the spin doctor, the media managers, the way the, the news is channeled out to us with press releases and, um, you know, electronic media like that, it really does change the way... You you know, things are done when it comes to journalism in general, but uh, particularly with aviation journalism, and particularly at the moment when there's just so much news around. That's right. Aviation and defence as well, which is obviously what I've had a little bit of exposure to in, in, in more recent times. But um, certainly, yeah, you, you've got to, you know, companies are employing people to control the message. It's, it's, it's basically, I guess, it's taken from the political side of things. You know, companies are now beholden to shareholders and invest, investors, and you've got to put as as positive a message out as possible. And um, so, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're controlling the message as much as possible. When you talk about uh, defence, and you mentioned defence there, and of course, we know that's that's an area that's uh, close to your heart. Um, mm-hmm. We find that uh, when we deal with the defence department, they're always quite positive to to get out there and you know, from the standpoint of our show at least, uh, to get yep. out there and show good news stories, and they seem to work uh, very positively with us. Do you find that uh, with Australian? Aviation? Absolutely. Um, well, almost without exception, all the people that I've dealt with in defence as a journalist um, who, who are communications or media people have all been very positive, to, A, towards the magazine, but also in terms of wanting to assist us. So unfortunately, they are let down somewhat by the system um, and by the political oversight, which, you know, if you go, for example, if you go and interview somebody, they, they will quite often be very um, reserved in, in, in terms of the information they give out. You then develop a trust with them and they're a little bit more forthcoming, but they do sometimes ask, can I just see a transcript before you go to press um, for fact-checking or for accuracy? Then quite often that'll go through half a dozen hands and what you get back compared to what you send out is very different. It's <laughs> got um, Swiss cheese, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and having just worked inside Defence recently, quite often even we'll get questions submitted to um, a program by media. Uh, we will answer those questions as factually as possible without you know revealing anything either commercially or, or security and confidence um, but that will then go through again several filters before it actually gets to the media ops people who then send it back to the to the journalist and quite often it's just diluted quite significantly it's it's kind of like that whole uh, the joke about you know someone at the bottom says oh this is terrible um, yep. using a slightly different word and yep. the next level up says ah oh, this is manure and yep. the next level up says ah oh, this helps us grow yeah exactly because it gets summarized yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, especially with the current um, government, the, the amount of oversight and, and control in terms of the message is really very restrictive. You know, in terms of, you know, obviously the, the budget has issues and so they're, they're trying very hard to control the message and, and um, you know, there's programs in trouble, you know, including the one that I was on. Well, the perception is that it's in trouble, including the one that I was working on. And, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, oversight in terms of what, what goes out. 
I think the biggest example we had of that, I guess, was last uh, year at Avalon when uh, Grant and I were talking to the uh, the US uh, Raptor pilot, the F-22 guy, with yep. uh, a couple of their embassy people hovering over our backs at the time. That was uh, quite an interesting experience for us. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Air Force, the Australian Air Force was actually quite sensitive for the F-22 being there because of the, um, you know, there had been some discussion in, in, in some of the think tanks and, and the media about why we hadn't ordered F-22 as opposed to the F-35. And so, you know, the F-22 was there basically because we had an Australian guy flying them and so it was good to have him there showing that off um, but I think the story given was that they weren't able to put an aerial display on for, for whatever reason and uh, I think that may have been a more political one of sensitivity rather than for any um, logistical reason. The official reason being given out was because they couldn't get a display pilot and yeah. everyone said we'd be happy if it took off and flew a circuit. <laughs> yeah exactly that, that was true the, the display pilot had run out of hours and had been recalled but you know, yeah. any any pilot of an F-22 can put a handling display on. So it doesn't yeah. have to be the full air, full air show display, but it can be a handling display, just a couple of fast passes and a couple of tight turns and, you know. Yeah, not hard not hard to do. And, no. uh, yeah, it's it was a shame. Uh, a couple of us got to see them, well, quite a few of us, but uh, from the media side of things got to see them depart. That was great yep. yeah. on the photo day. Yeah, I understand. I think uh, Paul Sadler was out there shooting it as well when they left. So here's a question uh, coming back into relationships and things like that. Yep. Uh, you, you've built up relationships. You've got a reputation. You're dealing with large commercial airlines, the manufacturers, the military, the government, things like that. How do you handle it when you've got to then uh, effectively turn around and bite the hand because there's some story that needs to be presented and it's not going to make them look good? Well, in defence, certainly from my experience with defence, defence doesn't mind you giving them a kick. A, if they deserve it, and B, it's balanced. If you get querulous, for want of a better word, and you're actually just looking for stuff to kick them for without putting any context or balance into it, then, yeah, you'll very quickly burn your bridges and you can kiss any access you might have had before goodbye. But if you put balance into it, if you say, look, yes, this program has had issues, however, Defence is still confident that that aeroplane is the right aeroplane for us or whatever, and you put it into context in terms of putting a bit of history into why it's got to the point it has, and rather than just putting a couple of hundred words on a blog giving them a kick without any context, then, yeah, that, that they will uh, very quickly um, drop you. We found out a challenge sort of managing those relationships. People didn't know who we were when we started this. And, yep. uh, obviously, we still come across that from time to time. So we've had to sort of, you know, tread that line and learn as we go in that regard. Well, I was very lucky through, you know, like I said, back in 96 when I started writing this book, I was very lucky that I actually developed personal relationships with people um, and, and so I, I, for want of a better word I was in the circle of trust and um, so um, and through through those initial contacts developed uh, contacts developed uh, quite a, a strong network of people both socially and professionally and, and you know like I said I, I'll if, if they deserve a kick they'll get a kick but it'll be a balanced kick and um, it won't be a personal attack on an, on an individual like some people do it'll be you know in in the right context and you know, we've been lucky we, we, we've been privy to information that other media outlets haven't um, in, in terms of in, and so we do get stuff in context quite often I'll, I'll in the past I've, I've got a lead on something I'll I've got access to the right people to ask the question about and I'll say look come in and have a coffee and we'll put it into context for you it may not be an official interview I won't be able to quote them but you know I can, I can at least get the real story rather than just running something, going off half-cocked, running something that, and then end up being way off base. It's in their yeah. interest that it's right. 
Moving in down through your career there a bit, uh, Andrew, I, I'm just looking at uh, some articles that I brought up here for reference. And, uh, of course, in uh, 2010, you were awarded the uh, Aviation Journalist of the Year for that year. Um, would you regard that, obviously, I guess, as a career highlight? Yeah, absolutely. That, that was uh, quite a surprise. You know, I've always seen myself as specialising in defence, and I've won a couple of the defence awards, which has always, again, been a bit of a surprise. But to actually get the big gong like that was was amazing. Uh, I, we had had a very busy year that year because we had sort of ramped it up a little bit with the website, and so I was basically writing probably 60-40 defence to commercial slash airline stuff. So you know, I was getting a good good spread there, and. Um, yeah, it was. I think that you know the the National Aviation Press Club tries to share the love around a little bit too. So you know maybe there's an element of that in it. But um, yeah, it was it, it was um, yeah very satisfying. So the award was for your efforts over that year in general, or I see yeah, also it's, it's, here. It's, it's, yeah, it's judged on a body of work rather than any specific or particular um, articles. So I think they looked at my body of work and the fact that I was you know deputy editor and I was having a little bit more say on, in, in what went into the magazine and, and things like that. So, yeah. So I'm curious about the National Aviation Press Club. Is that part of the National Press Club? Is that a, a separate no, organisation? No, no, it's totally separate. It's, it's um, basically um, uh, Ken Morton from Boeing used to be the secretary of it and the president... Um, I don't know if he still is, but until last year was Steve Creedy, who writes for The Australian. So Boeing basically organises um, the various functions, and that's when guest speakers come out, people like uh, you know airline CEOs or astronauts or, or, or whoever it is, a person of interest. And probably three or four times a year we, we meet at um, a venue in the city in Sydney, and um, it's like a press club address, basically. And it's, it's an open floor um, Q&A afterwards, and um, you know, quite often the speakers will announce you know, significant, make a significant announcement at them, so um, it's always of interest. And then at the end of the year, basically, as a journalist, you're invited to the, um, the end of year awards night. Uh, you're, you're invited to submit an article which you think may be worthy in, in that particular category. Uh, it's judged by um, either, either, I mean, Jim Thorne, for example, has been a judge a, a couple of times. So, you know, I guess eminent people in the industry um, judge the quality of the articles without knowing who's written them, I believe. And yeah, so they, they fall into each category. I think there's a photographer's category as well. And, uh, and then the body of work goes towards the journalist of the year. This is probably a, a difficult question to answer, but I'd like to throw it out to you anyway. With with so many stories under your belt, um, is there something that stands out to you? Is there there any one thing, or can you can you nail it down to one or two stories that you've covered over the time? You know, something that sticks out. Maybe not one particular story, but I think um, a, a series of stories we wrote on the Classic Hornet um, upgrade program that the Air Force um, did, starting in the early two thousands, and it finished just this year, um, and then. F- from that flowing into the Super Hornet decision and um, the workup that the Air Force did in, in bringing the Super Hornet into service and, and, and all that. So it wasn't just myself. Paul Sadler, who, who was our photographer, he actually went over to the US when the Super Hornets were delivered and came back on the tanker, uh, the first jets. And, and so he spent a, a week at the base over there. And so the, the insight we got and the access we got was just phenomenal. And when you put all, that, all those articles together, I don't think anyone can really touch the level of depth that we got um, across those programs. So we're, we're probably the Hornet experts in the country for want of a better word. That was pretty good access you had. Yeah, it was. It was fantastic. Yeah, we, 
we, we asked the question basically, and um, nobody else did. So that's why we got the access, which was great. So nice. Um, yeah, and Boeing have also, have also been very accommodating. It's in their interest to be, obviously. But between the Air Force and, and Boeing, and, and just even right down to the pilots and, and the, the engineers, you know, we, we've sort of really been brought into the fold and on a lot of those programs and, and given some fantastic access. I can think about um, in terms of the program that we're doing here and, and sort of coming from outside uh, mm. and, and looking in. I can remember a couple of things. I remember the first interview we did, for example, with Matt Hall. I didn't even sleep the night before, you know, <laughs> thinking, what am I going to ask this guy? And, 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 you know, our little journey here is, you know, standing in the, the media tent there at the Red Bull Air Race or standing in, a, in a, a mob of press reporters from the mainstream media when John Travolta came down, all this sort of stuff. That's a real rush for me. Do you still get that sensation yourself after spending this long in the aviation media? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I, I quite often pinch myself that I can call a lot of these guys, you know, good friends, you know, a, a couple of the guys who I've met through. I wrote a book in, in 2004-05 called Hornets Down Under and actually getting to meet people like Mark Binsky who's now uh, Vice Chief of Defence Force here at the time was Commander Air Combat Group and through him he opened a lot of doors for me and I met a lot of the, the display pilots at the time and, and a lot of the engineers and a lot of the guys in what they call the SPO which is the, the, the office that runs the maintenance for the, the sustainment for the jets um, and, and people who are now very senior in the Defence Force and, and who are even still flying Hornets and you know, I can pick up the phone and I can call these guys if I want to and, and I can call them friends. So that is quite a buzz. The thing we found, and I guess you would find the same, is that uh, even when people profess not to have a story to tell, everybody does, don't they? Everybody's got their own their own opinion on stuff and sometimes it's just a matter of sort of massaging that out of them. Yeah, that's right. And, and it is a fallacy, that, and it's been in the media a little bit lately, that people in the Defence Force aren't allowed to have an opinion on, on what they do. And that's not true. They, they are allowed to have an opinion and they are allowed to express it. Now, obviously, they have to do it again with balance and with a bit of thought and, and not making things personal. And, and it's not going to be career-killing. And it's, it's just a matter of, yeah, I guess you're right, bringing that out um, and not telling that story in such a way that it could hurt their careers. So, you know, you build up that element of trust. Actually, we find it easier to deal with defence personnel on that basis than it is dealing with people in the airlines. It seems to me that the airlines are far more protective of their corporate image than uh, than defence is at times. Yeah, but they've got commercial interests as well and they've got shareholders to answer to. So I, I, I can understand that. Same with the aircraft manufacturers, Boeing and Airbus and those guys. They really do need to protect shareholders' interests and one slip of the tongue can mean a big uh, big stock exchange uh, effect. Whereas in defence, they, they are very they are very aware of what they can and cannot say from a security point of view. Maybe not so much from a political point of view, but you know you, you, they know you're going to look after them and, and not write something in perhaps a context they didn't mean to say it. Yeah, because you've established yeah. the credibility. Exactly. Yeah, and and you know, if someone said to me that you know this general or, or that air commodore is you know such and such, you you wouldn't write that because it's <laughs> not going to add anything to the story. All it's going to do is get someone in trouble and get someone else annoyed. So yeah. this is not worth doing. Well, I mean, it's because of that building up the credibility and knowing uh, having the background, knowing what to ask, things like that, that you get access to a lot of the programs, as you said. And yeah. you you're right over a lot of the programs. And let's face it, the last five six years have been fantastic for seeing the implementation of some programs that were kicked off, like the Super Hornets, the Wedgetail, the uh, Tanker. Do you feel like the last five to ten years have been an amazing time to be writing? Yeah, it certainly has. You know, right back to even the start of the Hornet program, um, when we took the Hornets to war in 2003, you know, right through that period there. And then you're right, there was even talk about 
getting Super Hornets in 2004. So trying to work out, sort out the, I guess, the the wheat from the chaff in in terms of what was true and what wasn't then and then it eventually happening in late 05 and then the announcement being made and all that stuff. It was very interesting. Yeah, and you're right, the wedge tail, that's that's had a lot of pain and and trying to get access to people to talk about that pain has at times been challenging. But, um, you know, there's some really good people running that from both sides of the fence now. So they're a lot more forthcoming in terms of what's going on. Um, the, The tanker, exactly the same thing. Yeah. And a lot of pain with that, and I think there's still a bit of pain to come. I'm not sure, but uh, well, with uh, the boom and all that, it's still yeah, not, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Drogue I, is I, good. Yeah, they're going to hit IOC pretty soon for the um, the ALS, that's the the, the the cargo and and the, the the pods and the drogues. But um, yeah, I think there's a bit of work to go on the boom yet. I think one of the uh, really interesting things that I found about these platforms coming online when you talk about the wedge tail or or the tankers is that they are essentially converted um, civilian airliners or, or based on civilian airframes. I mean, the the seven three seven airframe just seems to be evergreen. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I think perhaps if they had their time again, they might have offered it on a larger, larger airframe. Like they're doing um, now but, with the new tanker on the exactly, 7.6? Yeah. Yeah. They, they may put it on a 7.6.7 or even something like that. So something a little bit more room inside because there's not a lot of growth left in that airframe now. So it's really no. been taken out as far as it can until you get into a new engine technology, which they're going to do with the Max, but that's still six or seven years away. So yeah, I, I, th- I think that if they had their time again, they may have offered a different platform. But th- th- I mean, that offering was made in 1998. Like with the Electra becoming the Orion, I mean, it was a very right. proven airframe. It uh, had been around long enough to get the kinks out of it, and yeah. everyone knew what they were getting into with it. So same That's thing right. with the 737. It's it's uh, very well produced and easy to get people who know about it and cross-train your staff with uh, with the commercials and things like that. So there are yeah, some I mean, there. Yeah, especially the pilots. That, that's right. You know, and a, lot, a lot of the Wedgetail pilots actually did a lot of time with Virgin Blue before coming yep. over to uh, during the delay. So, you know, they, they knew how to fly 737. That, that said, the, the Wedgetail is quite a different aeroplane in terms of the way it handles. Yeah. Um, it flies a little bit more angle of attack and, you know, there are some um, control differences as well. So, and, and obviously from a logistics point of view, it's a very different beast. It's more than that 737 airframe. <laughs> there's, I think there's 27,000 miles or something like that of, of wiring that, that isn't in a normal 737. So... There's a lot more bumps and lumps and protrusions on that fuselage. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, you can't just tap into Boeing 737 uh, logistics for it, that's for sure. No, Even the engines, there's differences because they've got generators on both engines. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of differences there too. Oh, yeah, and they're big generators too. So that's the MRTT, the, the uh, Wedgetail. They've, they've taken that, that airframe and they've modified it. And um, mm-hmm. in a way, we were we were kind of on the bleeding edge with those ones because we were driving the development of a lot of it and did cop a bit yeah. of flack for that. Especially with the MRTT, you're right. I, I think we underestimated how complex that was going to be. And I think Airbus did too. People just saw it as a, a, a basically an A330 with a couple of pods and a, and a boom. You know, the booms have been around 60 years, so why can't Airbus do it? And the pods are going to go on where the uh, outboard engines are on the A340. So, you know, it should be easy, right? Well, <laughs> it, it's not It's not your grandfather's A330, that's for sure. There is. That's... It is a very smart aeroplane. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember 10, 15 years ago, the US Air Force was talking about the smart tanker concept where a tanker would not just be a gas station in the sky, but would also be a communications node. Yep. It would also, you know, be an electronic warfare platform. Well, that's what our tankers are going to be. And, and you know, nobody had ever built one from the ground up before. They'd, they'd always just added bits on. Yeah, so, it was uh, incremental, not a whole revolutionary right. in a way. Yeah, but, and I think the industrial effort um, was un- underestimated as well. You know, the effort to, required to 
build the aircraft in Australia was underestimated, not not so much by Qantas but by Airbus. And so, you know, I think there was a bit of grief there initially, but they're, they're now all good. Yeah, well, they've definitely done a lot better than the Sea Sprites did. Yeah, the Sea Sprite, you know, I think a lot of that blame can be laid on, on Australian airworthiness requirements. They're very strict. They're some of the strictest in the world. Um, I think most other nations in the world would happily operate those aircraft. But, you know, and we tried to turn a, a, a Sea Sprite into a P3, basically. And, and yeah. you know, and seriously. <laughs> With two crew. <laughs> yeah, with two crew, exactly. And, it, it, you know, the, the software required for something like that is just phenomenal. And nobody, again, nobody had ever done it before. And then, you know, they almost did it, but they couldn't prove they'd done it. They yeah. couldn't produce a manual that our um, flight standards people would approve. Yeah. And that's what it came down to. And that's been one of the problems with the MRTT as well. You know, it, it's, it's the paperwork is just keeps getting sent back. Not, not good enough. Not good enough. That that's yeah. been the problem. Well, we certainly yeah. seem to have bypassed that with the C17 and the Super Hornets. They're cots. They're common off well, the shelf. Well, they are. Yeah, yeah, they're mots basically. Yeah, they're, they're they're basically standard US Air Force, US Navy fare with Australian roundels on them and, and maybe an ILS in them or a different radio. That's yeah. it. You know. They're, they're, even down to the roller bearings in, in the floor in the C-17, they're the same. So, yeah. um, and, and, and that, you know, the, the Super Hornet at the time was quite quite controversial, actually, but it, you know, Brendan Nelson basically did it on a hunch you know, with, with a bit of prodding from Boeing and, and good luck to them, but um, uh, it turned out to be very prescient because the F-111 was probably dying a little faster than people gave it credit for at the time, so... Well, it's, it's like when the F-111 came in and we had the F-4s to bridge the gap. And yep. now as the F-111's going out, whoa, once again, we're bringing in some different aircraft just to bridge the gap. Uh, yep, it right. almost looks like it's going to be a bit more than bridging the gap because I'd say, we're probably, especially with the growler capability, we're probably going to have them around even while the F-35's flying. I think you're right. Um, the initial plan was to have the Super Hornets for 10 years from IOC. IOC was, um, was it late? 11, wasn't it? So, yeah. you know, 21 and 22 was going to be the retirement date. I, I can't see them leaving much before uh, 25, 26 at this stage. And and you're right, the growlers are going to be here a lot longer than that. So that that's an additional reason to keep Super Hornets around a little longer. The Royal Australian Air Force is, is by world standards, a, a reasonably small air force. I, I guess the, the question I've always had about the fleet of Super Hornets, and despite their awesome capabilities, are there enough of them? Do, do we have enough of them if we needed them? or we, we, It seems to me we'd always need to be augmented by the US or, or allies. Yeah, but the Super Hornets were more than just about having airframes in carports at Ambly. Um, (laughs) What it was, was the Super Hornets brought 24 airframes in which we knew we could run pretty hard because we we don't have to get 30 years out of them. Well, Mm. maybe we do now, who knows? (laughs) But at the time, we didn't need to get 30 years out of them. So you could run them pretty hard. So you could could, get more hours per year out of an airframe than you can a classic Hornet, which you are going to keep for 30 years. So it's more than just having 24 airplanes. It's having 24 airframes you can put crews in and you can have engineers working on and you can have support staff and logistics staff looking after. Otherwise, those guys would be doing nothing or those guys would be going off to the airlines or the mines. So you've got to keep them gainfully employed until the JSF comes along. And that's that was the main reason behind getting the Super Hornet. It wasn't so much about having 100 combat aircraft. It was about having enough combat aircraft to keep X number of pilots and uh, WISOs and engineers and support staff gainfully employed in that transition. Which is interesting because when the JSF comes along, there's no more WISOs. Well, that's right. And and we didn't really have WISOs before, so, but we will have them for the Growler. They'll be called EWOs or, or yep. they'll still be air combat officers, but... You know, the, the, the generic name will be EWOS, so it's an electronic warfare officer. Um, but we won't need 
you know, 18, 20 of them will only need probably eight to 10 of them. Yeah. Uh, for, for a 12 aircraft fleet because you'll never have 12 aircraft in here at once. So I think they're going to do six and then wait a couple of years and do six more jets. So that'll be a, a very gradual transition up till about 2021. Yeah, it's a, it'll be a phased out. It, it'll be like just as people leave, they won't be replaced if, if they fall within the capability slot. I mean, one other, you were talking about putting some work into the airframes, really flying them a lot and things like that. Well, mm. I mean, the fact that they're supers and they're um, designed to bang off and on a bloody great carrier, I mean, that's it's a pretty good indication they should last for a while in, in the way we treat them. Yeah, but we thought that about the Classic Hornet as well, but um, it, it didn't turn out that way. The, the, the Classic Hornet was designed True. for 6,000-hour life, and um, we found that you know, around the 4,000-hour mark that we were seeing fatigue issues that the U.S. Navy wasn't seeing because we fly our aircraft very differently. The U.S. Navy is basically air-to-ground uh, with their Hornets, so they don't do a lot of air-to-air you know, BFM, whereas we do a lot of that. So More where A than F, so to speak. I'm sorry? More A than F, so to speak. Well, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So they were doing, you know, they were seeing fatigue in their centre barrel, you know, around the undercarriage, around the engine mounts, around the, the four body mounts. And so that's why they decided to replace the centre barrels. And we thought, okay, we'll, we'll do the same thing as part of our structural refurbishment program. But when they cracked the jets open to replace the centre barrels, they found a lot of other issues, uh, which the US Navy wasn't seeing. And Canada had already done some centre barrels. And so they looked at DSTO here in Australia, actually got its hands on the first couple of Australian centre barrels that they'd taken out of our jets and a couple of Canadian ones, and they actually tested them to destruction and found you know, the, the barrels aren't the problem. <laughs> That's why we only ended up doing 10 so, instead of doing so the whole fleet. So what did they find? There's all sorts of issues. There's, there's issues with the undercarriage. There's issues with, uh, with, with the captain wiring, um, which all, all aircraft of that era yeah. are experiencing. There's issues with um, wing panels um, and all sorts of other, just, just little discrete structural stuff cracking here and there, which can be fixed but it's very time-consuming and it's very invasive to do it. So they've embarked on a different track now for the structural refurbishment program. Instead of doing centre barrels, they're just going to, whenever they do a deep maintenance, which the jet was never designed for, by the way, <laughs> whenever they do a deep maintenance cycle, they basically just look for any kind of cracks. They do patching, they do blending, they do welding and stuff like that. So that hopefully will get the jets through to you know 2020 when, when they start to retire. Well, it's really amazing because you would think that you know they're pretty well they're pretty well strengthened to work in those environments. But I guess you're yeah. as, as you're saying, the stresses of air combat really do yeah. take it out of them. They do, yeah. I mean, these days, you know, with, with GPS weapons and with the, with the JASM missile, the standoff missile, and things like that, and, and our air-to-air missiles are slightly longer range now, and you've got the helmet-mounted sights, so there's not going to be as big a need to get into real tight-turning dogfights anymore, you know, the old knife fight in the phone booth. <laughs> they still train for that, and they'd be mad not to, but operationally, for example, when our jets went to um, Iraq in 2003 for you know, however long they were there, they found that a lot of the bombing they were doing was from medium altitude. They weren't dive bombing, they weren't strafing. It was medium altitude stuff with precision weapons. And that, yeah. that doesn't really take a lot of airframe fatigue life to do that. So where you're losing on the roundabout, you're gaining on the swing, so to speak. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a real fine balancing act, I guess, for the, for the Air Force yeah. guys to, to get them to their life. Well, that's, that's also where you have the situation of you're like, okay, well, uh, I guess the future air warfare won't really need that uh, close air combat. And then next thing you know, you fi- find yourself in a whole different world because you're up against a different opponent and yeah. it's all combat, all dogfight. And that's right. 
that raises the question then of, of how, how do you feel that the JSF is going to go in the future? Well, see, you know, it's funny. All, all the JSF proponent, proponents say, look, everything's going to be beyond visual range in the future and we're building longer range missiles and we've got longer range sensors and all that stuff. But, you know, you, you look at Vietnam, they had the F-4 and they had the Sparrow missile and yet they weren't allowed to actually engage any mm-hmm. North Vietnamese aircraft unless they positively identified them. Yep. And the only way to do that was visually. And yep. so they f- suddenly found, hang on, we don't have a gun. And the sidewinders in those days were notoriously unreliable, so they were just getting smashed by the MiG-17s and the MiG-21s that could turn inside them all day. Yeah. So, the, you know, it, beyond visual range is all well and good, but if the rules of engagement don't allow it, you, you're stopped. So that's why they've, they've put a gun in the F-35A, and it's still a 9G aeroplane. It can still turn at 9G, it can still shoot things at close range. It'll, it'll have the helmet so you can actually shoot things over your shoulder. You don't actually have to get a, your nose on the, on the target. And But yet it, it is still a 9G aeroplane. It's still going to be able to uh, hopefully outmaneuver uh, missiles in a terminal phase and things like that. So, How, how do you feel about, uh, like you're talking about the helmet and they're now finding problems with the helmet in terms of vibration and issues that it's a great idea, but once they actually try and use it in the real world, it's, it's turning up some problems. There's a lot of teething problems with new technology. That's to be expected, but they've tried to fast track the program. Have, have they tried to do too much too fast and dug themselves into a, a nasty corner? I think they did initially, but they've since, um, I, I think they're getting over the problems. I, I noticed a news report just recently, um, Tom Burbage from Lockheed was in Israel and he said look, that the, the only real issues now with a helmet are, are at night and that really is only on the, the F-35B, the Stovall aircraft, when landing on a carrier, coming into a hover and landing on a carrier. There's a little bit of latency. So yeah. if, you, if you look right, the picture will sort of follow slowly kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, a Marine Corps pilot at Farnborough last year or earlier this year was saying if, if I had a choice of going to war tomorrow with or without the helmet, I'd take the helmet every time because for those 99% of the times it's going to work right, it is fantastic. So it's, it, you know, it's one thing to say it's fantastic, but it has to be 100% in order to be ticked off by the flight test community. And, and that's understandable because those guys have got a huge amount of responsibility on their shoulders. And their primary responsibility is safety of the airplane in order to enter service. And, you know, the, the program has got a backup helmet in place. It's not as good as the, the original one, but it's it's got night vision goggles. So it's not it's not going to be that all encompassing helmet it's going to have add-ons on it but that is being developed in parallel with the original helmet so if the original helmet does fall over for whatever reason they'll have the backup one which is pretty much similar to what they're putting onto the supers isn't it i think it's a development of the one that's on the eurofighter it's, it's built by bae systems the oh, one right, on the yeah. super hornets is the jhmcs which i think was originally designed by busy in israel but has been developed by boeing yeah we got to play with a little bit of um, bae Technology. It wasn't quite a fighter helmet, but it was for um, slaving it to a gun or things like that. And yep. yeah, that was last Avalon. That was pretty funky technology. Yeah, well, the helmets these days are amazing. You know, especially in a Super Hornet, for example, the front seater can look at a target and he can cue the back seater to look at the same target through the helmet. And he can look at a target and then the, the electro optical pod will slave straight to that and the radar will slave straight to that. And so you're getting like a, you're getting the Mark 1 eyeball, you're getting the infrared pod, you're getting an electro optical picture and you're getting a, a radar picture of the <laughs> same target. To, so, you know, the rules of engagement are going to be um, adhered to, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sure. 
multi-spectral look at a, a target. And then you've got your jammers and everything flying alongside trying to stop you from getting that view. <laughs> well, but you've also got your own electronic kit. So if that target em- emanates an electronic signature, you've got that as another backup. So you're covering almost the whole spectrum. It's which... always difficult to keep up with, you know, what's right and what's wrong. There's, there seems to be so much commentary around the F-35 in general. A lot of it, I have to say, I find to be quite negative. I mean, what's your assessment of the aircraft? Was it the right aircraft for Australia? Well, there's two answers to that. Um, in 2002, when the decision was made, I would have to say maybe not because I don't know if enough was known about what the aircraft, um, I, I, you know, it, it promised a lot, but it hadn't delivered anything. And, I, and, and you know, it, it could be argued that maybe we went a little early. That said, um, I do believe now it is the right aircraft for us and, and I'm not just saying that because I have worked in the program for a few months. I, I, I've, I've talked to enough guys who are fighter pilots, who are former fighter pilots, who are flight test engineers to know that, to, and I've had enough of a look inside the paper bag so to speak, to know that it is the right thing for us. Now the time is going to hurt us, there is going to be a, not a capability gap but certainly a dip of a couple of years but you know I think in order to get to that next level of technology, that fifth generation, yeah, I think it's a risk worth taking. Yeah. Well, speaking of generations and uh, where it's progressing to and how it's going, I mean, the big topic for a lot of people is drones. Uh, yep. How do you see it going in terms of drones ranging from the small man portable ones for to give a tactical squad a bit of an advantage all the way up to the globals and the uh, potential for air combat via drone? Yeah, I heard it said the other day by somebody that um, you know, UAVs now are at the same level of technology as where we were in World War One with biplanes, basically. So <laughs> yeah, I think there's a long way to go. I, I think um, the next big leap forward will be the, um, the, the UCAS-N, which is the, the Northrop Grumman are building the X-47C, which they're going to fly off the carrier next year, I hope. Yep. Um, it's, it looks like a mini B2. Um, that is a, what they call a fast jet, as opposed to basically, you know, what we've seen with the predators and, and the hunters and the, the shadows and things that we're used to up to now. I know a lot of people have got a lot of uh, problems with drones firing missiles and things like that, but at the moment there still is a human in the loop. There's no drones out there making autonomous decisions to shoot missiles or drop bombs. There's still a person in a shipping container in Las Vegas pressing buttons. So um, I don't have a problem with it yet. I think where in, in the Australian context, I think the application for drones is really in a surveillance role. You look at the, the border security issues we've got up in the northwest. You know, you, you get a global hawk or, or a predator mariner out there, and that that'll do the work of two or three P3s or Dash 8s from Customs Coast Watch. And there's no humans on board. There's a guy sitting in an office in Adelaide controlling them. Yeah. And there's a lot there's a lot of sense in that. I think okay. with, with such vast borders, particularly to our north, and I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about border protection in the news and politically right at the moment. To me, it only makes sense to have unmanned aerial vehicles up there. We could uh, do that and, and, you know, it would yeah. be, I guess, far more cost effective than having humans out there uh, flying these aircraft and yeah. uh, they can stay up for much longer. That's right. And, and, you know, a lot of people from the Lowy Institute and, and, and those think tanks, you know, think a lot of the security issues that Australia are going to face in the future are, are possibly more economical or, or, or environmental ones rather than military ones and if you if I don't know if you read after the Japanese tsunami um, early last year 
the US Air Force sent a couple of global hawks out from yeah. Guam and, and they basically surveyed the whole Japanese coastline and, and had a real good situational awareness of where the major damage was within 24 hours and, and were able to give that straight to the Japanese government. Whereas it would have taken manned aircraft days or even longer to be able to get that situational awareness. Whereas all you got to do is send a global hawk up and down the coast, it'll just take pictures all day. You can sit up there for 36 hours. Uh, a mariner can do that for the same, same amount of time or a bit slower and a bit lower. And um, so I think those applications really haven't been fully explored yet. They've been demonstrated, but I think there's a lot more we can do. Imagine imagine a couple of global hawks after the Indian Ocean tsunami in 04. Oh, yeah. It just would have just added so much to where we could have sent aid to straight away rather yep. than just land, landing in Indonesia with a herc full of gear saying, I'm from Australia, I'm here to help, and they didn't even know we were coming. So, you know, there's <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of um, application there, which I don't know if the right people are thinking about enough yet. One thing's for sure, if the, uh, was it the X-47 with the uh, carrier takeoff and landing and so on, once that kicks in, it's going to really ruin the contents and the bravado of the tail hookers. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, again, I don't see UAVs replacing manned aircraft. I've just seen them um, complementing them, not supplementing them. Yeah. You know, you're going to have, you know, the, the initial kickoff of the war, they'll send a couple of the, of the UCAS out ahead of the package, and, and those guys will shut down the real high-end fan systems and defences, and that will then allow your F-35s and your F-18s to come in behind them and, and, and do the mopping up, so to speak. Yeah. It's, they're really going to help to gain air superiority, so then the manned aircraft and the transports and the helicopters can all do their thing. I, I don't see them ever replacing manned aircraft. I, I, I still think there's too many political and um, ethical issues with them, with them fully replacing manned aircraft. Okay, if we could just uh, switch quickly uh, before we finish up here, uh, Andrew, on to the uh, civilian world. Um, it's just mm. past the one-year anniversary since the uh, now famous or infamous uh, grounding of the Qantas fleet. Uh, we covered that extensively a year ago. Uh, one year on, how do you view what happened then and I guess uh, how it's all going for Qantas now? It, it was a massive call. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to say if it was the right thing to do or not. It really took a lot of guts. Um, I think Alan Joyce was in a very difficult position because the unions were being... Um, Especially the the, um, the the engineering union was was being very um, difficult and making life very very hard. Um, but you know a lot of people were inconvenienced. I think a lot of goodwill would have been lost with the airline by doing that. And, and it was right at the time where Virgin was starting to ramp up and, and become no longer a low cost airline, but a real what they call a, a new world airline, which yeah. I think um, Brett Godfrey initially called it. And, and John Borghetti has, has continued on that build up. And um, I, I think the timing couldn't have been worse. I think the airline, I think the unions have got a fair bit to answer for in terms of, um, you know, for a very short um, possible gain, I think they really hurt the airline. I still don't know if shutting down the airline was the right thing to do. And I think Qantas is in a world of hurt right now. Everyone can say, you know, they should have ordered 777s or they, you know, whatever. That that, that, that horse has bolted. So what the answer now is just get the 787 as quick as they can, get the fleet, fleet upgrade going. Well, they've entered into some uh, interesting strategic alliances, which uh, may form at least part of the answer. Yeah, I... Gee, and that that really took me by surprise. The Emirates tie-up. I know people were talking about it, but I, I, I personally, I I thought no, they wouldn't do that. I, I I couldn't see what was in it for Qantas. You know, bypassing Singapore and Bangkok, which are the traditional kangaroo routes, is not fully bypassing them, but certainly taking the the, the flagship aircraft off those routes is a big call. Mm. 
um, you know, and just focusing on London and LA, which is really all they're going to be doing with the, with the odd flights to was it Buenos Aires and Joburg, is a really big call. Whereas you know, Qantas International used to be all over the world. So uh, that, that said, the domestic product is still very good. I, I still like Virgin's domestic product as well. So uh, that's going to be a very interesting contest, especially with Virgin now taking over part of Tiger and bringing that into the fold. Yeah, well, that is the big news this week. And I guess uh, we, we've talked a long time about John Borghetti and we often muse about how things might have been different if they'd given him the top job at Qantas. But uh, it seems to me that uh, he's taking what he wanted to do at Qantas and he's doing it over there at Virgin and doing a great job of it. I don't know if Borghetti would have had the control at Qantas if he got at Virgin. Um, I, I, I think the board is still very much in control at Qantas. So yeah, I think Alan Joyce is quite restricted in what he can do and what he, as opposed to what he'd like to do. So I'm not sure all the blame for Qantas' position could be laid on Joyce's in Joyce's hands. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that said, Borghetti has done a tremendous job at Virgin. He really has taken what Brett Godfrey built and taken it to the next level. Um, you know, initially, I think there was a bit of pushback from the staff, but they seem to be all coming on board now, and, and the customer service experience really shows that they are on board. Yeah. Um, you know, there really seems to be a fantastic culture there. Um, that's that's something Vir- um, Virgin's got leaps and bounds yeah. over Qantas, and it's probably the biggest thing Qantas has to turn around if they yeah. want to continue i mean it's all very well doing networks trying to get the 787 on and and you know joyce and the board you're right the board has a lot of control over joyce and they're continuing on like dixon seemed to correctly see what was coming up but then he went hard-headed against everyone and steamrolled things in and really annoyed and aggravated everyone you can have all the best gear and you can have some great alliances but if your staff are really upset with you or you've got people old school who are getting a lot more money for the same job than some of the new schoolers coming in, you're going to have problems. Yeah. I mean, that, that said, I've never had a bad customer experience with Qantas. I've, I just have better ones with Virgin, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I get a smile at Qantas, I get a grin at, at Virgin. Yep. That's the difference. And, and you yeah, know, you walk into a Qantas airplane and, yeah, you know, okay, it's okay. You know, it, it, it may be the second best domestic product in the world, I don't know. But I've flown JetBlue and Virgin America and they're both fantastic. So Virgin Australia, you walk on board and the new colour scheme, and, the, and it's just a really nice scheme. It's, it's, a, it's a welcoming interior. It's... It's always clean. It's always. It doesn't smell like crap. The staff are really going out of their way to help you, yeah. whereas Qantas just does the basics. Virgin just does that little bit extra. Yeah, they're they're, they're motivated. They. Yeah, I think it's so. like Air New Zealand as well, uh, and that was that approach of staff, then customers, then shareholders. And yeah. if your staff are happy, they go the extra mile. They uh, the customers go, I will pay extra for that. And the yeah. shareholders go, Wow, we've got money. <laughs> exactly. Coming from a hospitality background, as I do, that's always been the way that I've seen it. You know, customers first. You know, you get you, you then get a happy customer, you get happy staff, and yeah. then well, the rest of it looks after itself. Well, hopefully that's something that uh, will rub off onto Tiger Airways from Virgin. I mean, uh, the, the, anyone that listens to this show for any length of time will know my beef with uh, with the way uh, Tiger Airways operate, and that's that's really yeah. no slight on their their staff in the aeroplane. I mean, they're just as good as anybody else. But uh, yeah. that that basic customer experience at Tiger Airways is terrible, and uh, they you know they really do need to improve that. I, I certainly hope that uh, some of uh, Virgin's ideas rub off on them. Yeah, I agree. But that said, you know what you're going to get with Tiger, yeah. um, it, it, you know, and they don't hide that fact that. that that, that the Airways show is is um, proof in the pudding. You, you know, that, I think they've done that show to educate their clientele. This is what you get, and <laughs> you're paying thirty eight dollars because this is what you get. Something's got to give somewhere. You can't well, pay yeah. bugger all and get brilliant service. Exactly. You know, you, you're going to get a forty five minute check in and not a forty four minute check in. You're going to have pay for your bags. You're going to pay for your peanuts, and yeah. you're going to and and get no carry on. And and 
you know, that's Ryanair. Look how successful Ryanair is. Look how successful Southwest is. <laughs> uh, Southwest has got a fantastic staff culture, which maybe Tiger needs to learn from. But it's it's a no frills operation, and, and you know they they they're both very successful. So. Maybe, maybe Tiger Airways needs to hire that o- O'Leary character and bring him over here. It oh, seems to me. Like, the more he the more he, yeah. the more he insults the audience, the more he insults the customer, the more they flock to him. It's amazing. <laughs> But no, mate, don't give me any ideas, please. <laughs> <laughs> but look at look at it. You know, what is the lowest ranked? It got a zero on the scale airline. That's North Korea's airline, right? One yeah, step above Korea, yeah. on one step above on level one is Ryanair. Ryanair is ranked one level above the North Korean airline, which is the only level zero in the world. So, <laughs> yeah. And yet, how many aircraft has Ryanair got? What is their backlog? You know, they've got, they've got what four hundred seven three seven. They've got a backlog of over two hundred. Yeah. And they're incredibly successful. So yeah, because they go where no one else goes. If you want well, to get that as well, B, yeah. <laughs> they're the only ones, and that's yeah. how they work it. If you, you know, you you can either sit in a tiny seat, know it's going to be horrible, but you'll get there quick. Versus yeah. A to B to C. <laughs> but they've got a very good on time departure rate. Yes. Um, they've got a good reliability rate. You know, they've got the good good airplanes. They keep their their fleet relatively young. So yeah, yeah. There's you know, pros that's and how they operate. You know you're getting a glorified bus in the air. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. But you're paying. You're probably paying fifteen pounds or whatever it is to get to Spain. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, Australian Aviation Days are behind you. I guess Australian uh, Defence Business Review Days they're behind you as well. What's uh, what lies in the future for you? Well, I've got a couple of projects in the pipeline. A little too early to announce anything yet, but um, I'm hoping to have a bit more news by the time Avalon comes around next year. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm just keeping my eye in. I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of um, writing for various people. Um, I've got a book project which I'm doing which we'll have to have a bit more news about at Avalon as well oh. and um, yeah, yeah you'll certainly see me around the traps that's for sure uh, well, we'll, <laughs> well, be, we'll be at Avalon for all six days so it uh, sounds like we're definitely going to have, have to uh, catch up with you there yeah I'd love to that'd be great Andrew McLaughlin it's been a privilege to speak to you mate it's uh, it's something I've wanted to do for uh, right since we started this program actually is uh, catch up with uh, people such as yourself from Australian Aviation and uh, people of your calibre it's, it's a privilege to have you on the show mate and we hope we can talk to you again at some time in the future uh, thanks Steve thanks Grant I, I really appreciate it Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Do you have the need? The need for speed? Jetride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalyn. And, and we're, we're from, from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who'd love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. 
I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks, and welcome back to our resident raving reporter and resident superstar, Kathy Megstead. How are you, Kathy? Did you like that intro? I love that. What's the superstar? What have I done to be superstar status? Oh, everybody loves it when you come on the show. We get heaps more downloads. We should have you on every episode, I think. <laughs> I haven't got that many words in me, Steve. <laughs> oh, I tend to disagree. Oh, I don't I know, know about much, that. Our discussions gets cut. Just remember, I edit these things, Kathy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we know how many words there are and how much gets said and how much doesn't make it into the final cut. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. Kath, now, Kathy, the last time you were on the show, right at the end there, you mentioned that uh, your upcoming project was to go for a ride uh, down at uh, Bowen Heads, was it? Down there in uh, down in Geelong and uh, go do a bit of aerobatics. And I believe you have done that. Yes, I said I was going to find a man to make me scream and I didn't <laughs> scream, but we we went upside down and round and round and out over the water and back again. It was great. So uh, I chased up Anatole Mills. He has Warbird Air Adventures down there and uh, he's got a Nanchang. He flies out of Bowen Heads and so he very kindly took me up for a fly and we did some wing overs, loops, barrel rolls, had a look around. It was beautiful. And then I said, I feel sick now. Can I go home? <laughs> he said, that's fine. You've done well. Better than most. <laughs> what did you get into five minutes or? Uh, I think he told me it was 21 minutes. Well, that's well done. That's good value. That's not bad, is it? Yeah, excellent. So so yeah. seriously, I mean, um, have you had, you know, any experience with aerobatics before that? Yeah, John Williams took me up in a pit. That was good. Intense. And I went up in a... Uh, Tiger Moth at Yarrawonga and another guy in a Tiger Moth at Finlay when he, a couple of guys just flew in. I think they're just on a trip round, round about the place and we met them at the airport. So mum went in one and I went in the other. It was great. And flying with Dennis can be a little bit aerobatic, whether you want it or not. So, <laughs> um, so I've had my, I've had a, yeah, love-hate relationship with aerobatics. <laughs> But um, it was good. I had a fly in a CT4 once too. We are flying at 500 feet up the beach at Warner Vale. Would that be right? Is that up just north of Sydney somewhere? And I said to the guy, I just feel like I want to roll it over, you know. <laughs> he said, have a go. I went, yeah, right. Yeah, the CT4s are good for that. Yeah, but I didn't do it. I was too chicken. Oh, I've gotten up to mischief in a CT4 and uh, even though the statute of limitations has expired, I'll save it for now. But it was a lot of fun. We had a great flight. Really enjoyed yeah. ourselves. Yeah, we took off out of Barwon Heads and it's only 10 minutes down to Anglesey and the Great Ocean Road and the Orange Cliffs at Bells Beach and the Turquoise Water and gorgeous. Okay, so Cathy's uh, recorded a great interview with, uh, with Anatole, so let's go to that now and uh, let's catch this uh, really catchy intro tune. How long have you been at Barwon Heads flying the Nanchang? We've just been for a flight in the Nanchang, haven't we? And we're sitting on the grass because my legs won't help me up. <laughs> With a bottle of water. With a yeah. bottle of water. <laughs> um, three years. Yeah, so we started in Cairns and Townsville and then came down here. And can you tell me a bit about your background, about how you got into flying and your grandfather and your father? Yes. And there's a fantastic story about a horse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, grandfather started flying between the wars in England, uh, just outside London, so claimed to be um, the first pilot to be to go from ab initio, you know, or to go all the way through uh, to his private pilot's license all in a autogyro, in a Spanish autogyro in the 30s, early 30s. 
Um, and then he yeah, went to war, came back, got his private well, license in Australia, and flew uh, 7,000 hours as a private pilot. Oh, he claims more, but he only wrote down 7,000 of them. And um, uh, yeah, I grew up on a farm, so we had a plane. And Somewhere uh, out of Launceston. Yeah, our northeast tip of Tassie. So we had all those islands, you know, the Ferno group of islands. So we used to fly, um, yeah, stuff to those islands, you know, because um, my uncle had tried to run sheep on one of the islands. So we used to fly him stuff, like drums of fly oil. Sheep? Snakes, I remember. Chickens. Don't snakes. remember any sheep. Yeah, there was people catch. Preservation Island's got heaps of snakes, and there was like a snake farm in, in near Launceston. Snakes on that plane. Yeah, yeah, totally <laughs> in brown hessian bags. Really? Yeah. A lie. Yeah. And you're in the plane. I I used to try and bum every single ride I could, um, but that one I think there was you know it was only a little it was like a two A six type airplane. Yeah. Um. So it was yeah when there was like just when it was just male or something I would go but this uh, the snake one I wasn't I wasn't part of it. Yeah. But yeah, so I grew up with yeah planes and trying to get on every time my dad flew I'd try and get in if it was a spare seat. What sort of planes did they have? So your father and your grandfather were both farmers? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hence the grandfather flying everywhere. Because um, he had a farm in Queensland and Tassie. So he started off in gypsy moths as well, you know, flying around. And then a 170, then a 180, and then a Comanche. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, grew up with planes basically and farms so when I left school I thought I had to be a farmer because I've got two sisters and then that sort of didn't pan out luckily and then got into flying eventually. So yeah. where did you learn where did you do your training? I uh, started in Cairns went overseas and then did the rest uh, at Point Cook just with the GA school there. Yeah. In what? Cherokees mostly I oh, think yeah. I remember a bit of a mixed mixed bag yeah, and nothing your, interesting. What was your first job? Was uh, well, I did a few, as just you know, sort of a job, I suppose. It was sort of private. It was for a mate who was a grain trader, so buying and selling grain. So I flew him around, and I just got an instrument rating, so it was worked out well. So I flew him around New South Wales for a while, um, and then saw an ad advertising to be a warbird pilot or something in Adelaide, and I thought that can't be a job. <laughs> that sounds too good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I think we were going to like Dunkill Races or something. So we got. Well, I thought we were halfway there on the weekend, and we just drove the rest of the way to Adelaide. Yeah, and and did that um, for a summer, and that's how it started. Because the guy I was working for said, "Why don't you start it in Cairns?" And then he couldn't work out how he would pay me because he thought I'd just sit on the beach. Yeah. and spend all his money. Yeah. Um, so I thought, fair enough, how about I start it and I'll just use one of your planes. Yeah. So I took his plane and started up there and then promptly gave his plane back and leased my own and that's how it started. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. what year was that? 2008. Yeah, so 2008, 2008. Yeah, 2008, sorry. And so yeah. how long were you in Cairns? Three years? Yeah, every winter for three for three years. So this winter just been the first one I haven't been up there. And we'll probably go up, so we're um, getting a Yak 52. So I'll probably, 
um, have two down here and then in winter have one up there. So tough life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And will Annabelle go with you? Uh, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> we'll just put this on the recording. Yeah. She's wanting to know what her future is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, always looking at the wives' angle because yeah. I've packed enough boxes myself. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, is that the hardest part? Yeah. Trying to accommodate the family? Yes. Because uh, the other thing is, um, uh, I sound spoilt, but it's a pretty good gig just flying aerobatics. But I sort of want to do a bit different other type of flying. And there's an opportunity in Cairns um, to do that. Row. There's not so much down here. More GA Melbourne. flying. You know, twins and IFR. It's a bit of a challenge because yeah. there's only a few thousand loops you can do. We've just gone up for a fly on the most magnificent day here at Barwon Heads and the turquoise water is divine. So um, it's a pretty unique view, isn't it? Looking at it. Yes. Watching it coming straight at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm interested yeah. to see the video footage. Yes. What happens yeah, to my face as, the my, camera on. Yeah. as my stomach was coming up to meet my brain, which was getting <laughs> pushed down. It feels like your face is getting peeled off, but in the video <laughs> it's not quite so bad. Yeah. So you've got another six flights today, have you? Seven, I think. Seven. Yeah. There's yeah. one guy over there nervously pacing, waiting for us yes. to finish this interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we sort of do. That's, about, that's a good day, is eight, as, as in... If, Sometimes I've you know, booked 10 and that's too much. Yeah. But um, we've got a pilot, another guy now, so he flies A320s normally and um, yeah. gets a little bit bored, sort of whinges about when he gets rostered <laughs> on to do a Perth. So he comes and flies on the weekends and it's a really good day when there's two of you. Yeah. You know, it makes it really nice. What yeah. training did you have to do to go from your warrior into the um, I had, Chang? Yeah, I had an instructor who was young, I think younger than me, because I was sort of like 20. Yeah. I think he was even younger. Yeah, and he was just really enthusiastic. One well, of the best instructors I've had, just ridiculously keen. Had written some paper on it, you know, on the German diesel engines <laughs> of World War, you know, 1930s, like a just mad sort of guy. And he just kept going after every, like, nav exercise. We'd go, all right, so do you want to do some aerobatics? I think there was a CT4 or something at Point Cook at the time. And yeah. he's like, let's do aerobatics. Let's do and I was like, yeah, oh, no, like, you know, I've only got so much money, I want to spend it on... <laughs> You know, so I did um, eventually relented after like him every flight. Let's do aerobatics, come on. Just do, we'll just do one hour, one hour. I'm thinking, well, one hour is like 200 bucks. Like, what am I going <laughs> to. Um, How were you funding it? Uh, that was part, so I, uh, a try, yeah. Sh- short story is mostly through, I worked uh, in England for six months oh, yeah. or a bit more and worked on a farm seven days a week for an entire season and managed to save four and a half thousand pounds which is about oh, when the wow. pound was mighty that was pretty much the PPL. yeah yeah okay. so yeah that was it so that's why i was being stingy oh, but anyway he got me he got me see, into it he could probably aerobat. see that checkbook yeah bulging yeah yeah <laughs> no well, no it wasn't by then because that was sort of by the end and so that's why i was so tight but anyway i did i flew once um yeah, I did. It. I did it enough to get me my aerobatics rating in a aerobat. Yeah. Yeah, and that was it. And that was the last. And then I went and did, you know, all the other flying. Flew the, the mate doing the grain trading thing. Didn't do aerobatics for like two or three years. I even rented an aerobat once just to come down to Bowen Heads to see Annabelle. She used to live down here. Yeah. And you know, it was aerobatic. I was aerobatic. And then I, I sort of started to pull up to do something. Yeah, maybe a barrel roll and everything creaked and groaned and I thought, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then he yeah, got the job with the Warbirds guy and um, as part of like the interview was flying. So 
So he said, why don't we go for a flight, radio? And I didn't have my seat. It mustn't been in the, they got up and down with the Nanchangs. And I must have had it like sort of halfway but not clicked in properly. So I was like, yeah, okay. And I hadn't done any aerobatics for two or three years and just pulled into a loop and my seat collapsed. My <gasps> headphones came off. We were upside down. I couldn't see, see anything. Sort of came back and like popped my seat back up, put my headphones back on. Anyway, I got the, yeah. the guy. It ended up all right. I got the, the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have just seen my head disappear at the front. <laughs> um, so, do you have any employees? Yeah, so just the guy, just, just um, yeah, Nobby, who fires for yeah, A320s out of Melbourne. And yeah. um, so, you're based at Barwon Heads and you're about to move in with the skydivers. Well, we're moving to the so same size airport, the action side, yeah. Plans are afoot. Yeah, plans are afoot. We've got a donger. So it's me and Geelong Helicopters in our little donger that we're going to do up. You're going to paint yeah. it? We're going to paint it. We're going to have a deck, barbecues. Mm. A deck on the roof is Anton's idea, which is pretty good. Mm. Yeah. Flat screen tellies, you know, to entice people. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So then you can and come the back and watch your well. video. Yes, exactly. Oh, on the big telly. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I can't wait. That'd be good. And cause, and now we've got the what are they? Yeah, the Melbourne skydives or something have just started here, and they're um, yeah, they're doing doing a lot already. So yeah, it'll be good. Fantastic. Now, can you tell us the story about the horse? Oh yes, Ernest. Had a few run in. My grandmother said he had some sort of angel because he had a lot. But one of the, the best one, well, one was falling asleep over Melbourne before I get to the horse. <laughs> and that, anyway, he got in a lot of trouble for that. He but, fell asleep? Well, that's the story. In his memoirs, he does say that he misread the compass or something. Uh. But he did uh, fall asleep a bit. And then when the engine sort of spluttered, he changes tanks, wakes him up. And, according to my grandmother, anyway. But the horse was, yeah, at our farm in his 170 obviously can't see much out of the over the nose and um, uh, flaring to land in his words is like I was flaring to land wondering why the aircraft would not settle and um, eventually it did as the horse collapsed and it nosed over and up flipped upside down and that was the end of it yeah I think it wrote the plane off yeah and it wrote the horse off that gut-wrenching sound of expensive <laughs> yes. sound of crunching metal yeah yeah, it's a few insurance jobs. He did a few. Yeah, the Comanche was a tough plane. It was um, did a few wheels ups and did still fine. So has he written a book? He did His called memoir. the Flying Farmer. Oh, okay. Don't know if it sold very many copies though. <laughs> Can we still get it? I've got the original manuscript. Yeah, I've got the original book. It's interesting for me because he's in, you know, he's my grandfather, and the flying stuff's pretty interesting. Like back when, you know, they'd land on a beach somewhere off Tassie and bend the landing gear and some will just go, you know, fly back to the local farm, get the oxyacetylene, fix it, mm. fly off again. Yeah, those sort of days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about your dad? Does he still, is he still around? Yes. Still flying? Yeah, he just imported a 337 from the States. Oh, right. Yeah. And what's he, how many hours has he got? I don't know. I'd have to, I don't know. His granddad did 7,000. 7,000. I'd say my dad would be probably nowhere near it. Oh, it probably must be 3,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just owning weird planes. So the first one was a Lockheed. So people listening might see that in the trader all the time. It was a Lockheed AL-60. Looks like an air van. You know, the um, very square, 300 horsepower, 
and can lift a lot, but it's very slow and inefficient. And um, then we had a Helio Career, which is um, is only it's st- still the only one in Australia um, used by Air America for the CIA, you know, drug running at that in the Vietnam Lao War. And then a little thing called a Pinguino, which is a a small version of a Sia Marchetti Air Force sort of thing, Air Force trainer, and then the 337, and he's up in Cairns, so, you know, um, high wings, uh, you know, reef scenic flights is what he wants to do. But, um, yeah, learned a very good lesson about importing planes is if you want it done by July, I don't think it's still... It's, it's flying, but there's still, you know, uh-huh. this to do and that to do. So the li- latest one long... he's got in Cairns? Yeah. Oh. yeah so he's just. not on the Tassie farm anymore? No, no, so we sold that, which is why oh. I sort of gave up on the farming thing. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't that into it anyway. I was sort of obsessed by playing. That's the luckiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if my old man wanted me to be a farmer, he shouldn't have kept a plane in one of the, ha- <laughs> in the hangars. Yeah. yeah, and you've got two little daughters, so... Yes, I think we... Yeah. There shouldn't be anything holding them back. No, no, except we might have burnt all the fossil fuel by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, so... So you're happy with the way the business has gone? Yes. You've obviously managed to feed yourself and two yes. children on the way. Yeah, it was pretty grim the first two years, but that was pre-kids. So I couldn't have done it, I don't think. I was just a lucky sort of timing. I thought yeah. you'd just open the hangar doors and the money would fly yeah. in. Yeah, Is that yeah. how it works? Yeah, it's totally what happens. No. Yeah. Anyone should get to it. <laughs> Yeah, no, what's it was pretty grim part? for two years. Um, oh, what's, what's, business, yeah. the business, the feeling that you always should be doing something. Yeah, and so you, they, you, you, you never, yeah, just a constant feeling that you're either not doing enough or you should be doing something. And then I found surfing, and that's pretty good. So that's how you relax? <laughs> well, yeah, just to get, yeah, because you don't, you do, you get the guilt after about an hour that oh, I really should be editing someone's video or something. Yeah. But that, for that first hour, it's like, forget about it yeah and that, but that's any business yeah. yeah and how old are you now 33 so it was tough for the first two years and what do you think changed i don't know luckily you just it was, suddenly got busy it was, yeah it was lucky because it was about to all just no right that's it can't do this anymore um and it just suddenly took off in melbourne so we put, yeah so cans the first year post gfc just started 2008 was it and it went quite well and I thought, then we went to Melbourne and it was obviously really dead. And I was like, how do I even, Melbourne's such a big, so I can't buy TV ads, you know, it's all just out of my league. So it was all hard to know how to appeal to people. Yeah. But, um. Didn't know where to start. Yeah, it was a bit daunting. Yeah. And, um, and then thought, well, after that summer thought, oh, maybe Cairns. Cairns will be really good. They already know who we are. I've gone around the travel agents. I've worn out like two pairs of Dunlop bollies walking around to all the tour desks. And we got back there, and I think it was 2009 or 10, and Cairns just fell over. Mm. And it's just recovering now. And that's why I didn't bother. This Cairns as a place, or just your as business? A tourist, Cairns? As a tourist. Cairns is the whole Cairns. I yeah. remember when we first got there, I remember the sort of restaurants that were in the middle of town, and then, well, you'd know. And then when you go there mm. again, and you're walking along, you go, I remember that was something that's just empty with chairs stacked up right. for Lisa. And there was a lot of that two years ago. Okay. And I thought, for the expense of flying a plane up there, you know how expensive it is, it's 10 hours, it's 20 hours flying. Um, and then driving the ute up there, renting a house, taking yeah. the dog, flying yeah. Annabelle and the girls up there. Convincing Annabelle to driving go. Driving her car up there. <laughs> I think it's like, it's 33 hours driving and I've got to go take the ute up, take the car up, mm. and take the ute back, take the car back. It's like 120 hours of mm. sitting in the car. 
And how long to fly the Nanchang? Ten hours. Ten hours. Each oh, it's way. a long day. So it's picked up again. So, okay, yeah. so when Cairns fell over, Melbourne. Oh, we just up. stayed here. So yeah, Melbourne's just been good. You know, mm. it's just just cruised along. Um, Is it mainly word of mouth or? Some clever yeah. journalist came and wrote the right story, yeah, yeah, or was it yeah, teaming totally. up with business partners? Or? There's an article in the Australian. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who was that girl? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a mix. It's a lot of um, as when we first started, it was newspapers worked well. Yeah. It's a weird one. This is all just technical marketing stuff, but it's it's a really interesting that newspapers and that sort of stuff started to die now. So now it's internet. Yeah. Totally kind of exciting but um, kind of scary as well because with newspapers you knew you'd be like right I'm going to go in the Father's Day gift guide yeah. works for me every year yeah, and yeah. now it's like you look at the figures of the Herald Sun or something it's just you know halving each year or whatever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah age. have you got a website yes what is it um w's flyingwarbirds.com.au okay there's a cool video on there to check out what it is what we do and do you reckon you'll be doing it for a while yeah um, yeah, I can't see why I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I really like it. I especially like it when there's two of us. Yeah. Yeah, doing it by yourself, like it's fun, but it's a it sounds stupid it's that I'm saying this, but it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the flying's easy. It's everything else. Um, and when there's two of you, it's just yeah, it's fun. I think it's anyone prefers working with someone else. Yeah. 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 I know writing from home. I sit there and yeah, think, oh, should I do the dishes or should yeah, I write yeah. that story? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> should I go and weed that garden or should yeah. I just have another cup of coffee? Yeah. Or... So how does a typical flight go? You take off out of beautiful Barwon Heads and we yep. climbed up to 4,000 4, feet. 4,000 feet-ish, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and we then don't... it all started spinning. and I... <laughs> Then we had to land. Still sitting on the grass recovering. Yeah, um, yeah so 4,000 feet. So we don't push the plane very hard. Like the power settings are quite low. It's only 60, 65%. So we pretty much use um, altitude, you know, for all our speeds. So, um, yeah, start at 4,000 feet. Uh, we've got a... Both pilots are... You know, low level, so we end up at 1500 feet to our minimum. So, you just sort of work our way down, you know, start off with the 2G stuff, um, barrel rolls and wing overs and that sort of thing, then a few other rolls, and then uh, loops, which is in a Nanchang about 160 knots, and 4G. You can do through, or you can go less or more, depends what shape you want the loop to be. And that's the bit where my brain started yeah, pushing down. That was into it. My head. Yeah, that was. Four point something, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, Cuban eight. Well, there's no trouble for me, of course. No, no breeze. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, I the view's so good. Yes, yeah, yeah, the videos do look good um, down here because yeah, just the contrast of those the red orange cliffs near Bell's Beach and the the, the water it looks awesome. Yeah, so, and then you sort of work your way down depending on how well the passenger goes. You usually end up at 1500 feet and then just cruise along the beach. Yeah. Um, back home, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. What you saw, pretty What's well. um, been the most extreme thing that's happened? Has anyone ever freaked out on you or I've come had... back and, decide, and come back two years later and said, no. I've learnt to fly, I loved what you did for me? Or... I've had a lot of people say, all right, because they've done, you know, they did 12 hours and then they had kids and, yeah. and you know, it all sort of got put on the back burner and then their wife gets them this and it's the wife's regret it because then they jump off the plane going that's it I'm gonna you know <laughs> I'm getting my pilot's, pilot's license. license yeah 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 you should open a flying school yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so there's yeah a lot of that um freaking out not really the um 
I've had one guy flip out just on the, you know, taxing out, and that's probably the, the only... So there'd be a big skill in reading people's emotions and Yeah, you can tell. Yeah, because from the moment you greet them, you get a really good feel. Of, yeah. yeah, I've done however many, nearly 2,000, I think. So, yeah, you've got a good feel of how yeah. well they're going to go. You don't always get it right, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks for talking to us. Well, there you go. I told you it was a catchy tune. And uh, talk about freaking out there, Kathy. Now, uh, I believe that uh, he was freaking out about the interview while you were busy freaking out about the flight. So I think it was a mutual <laughs> freaking out society. <laughs> the power of the microphone. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a pretty cool guy, Anatole. When I went down to Bowen Heads, oh, it was on my birthday one year, which is February, so it might have been two years ago, and I was doing a story for AOPA, and um, I was sitting there interviewing somebody, and I looked up and saw this vision of loveliness, which was this big, uh, tall, blonde bombshell with long blonde hair, you know, streaming in the breeze, being strapped in by this long, lean, dark pilot. And off they went in the Nanchang. And I thought, my God, where did they come from? What a, what a, it was just like a vision, you know, before me. So I chased him up and did a story on him and that was how I came across him. So, yeah, I had vowed to go back at some stage and, and do a flight. But I didn't freak out. I didn't freak out. I was cool. Now, you were talking before, Cathy, about the other aircraft that you've been up and done a bit of aerobatic work in. Let's say compare it to your ride in the pits. I mean, can you compare it to that perhaps in terms of a more high-performance aircraft? Well, actually, in the pits, um, I remember we were flying along inverted and we were inverted for a long time and then that was fine and then my legs, you know, your knees come up. They kind of drop off. They kind of unstick yeah. from the floor. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember the role in the pits was very um, – very controlled and it just felt like someone had the world and it was turning in front of you, you know, whereas the Nanchang's quite noisy and it has a lot of diving and a lot more Gs. I don't remember the Gs in the pits, but I guess there must have been. It was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago. Yes, well, I had a ride in the pits about 20 years ago and I'm still having nightmares about it, so there you go. <laughs> no, I'm trying to lose enough weight to get in a pits. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I wouldn't fit in one these days. Oh, I'm hanging for a, a pits flight. I love them. Yeah. He said that we were pulling four and a half, four plus Gs, I think. Um, uh, the feeling of, you know, that feeling where your brain just feels like it's going to separate from your skull? <laughs> Have you ever had that? Did they do that to you in the Herc, Steve? Uh, yes. Well, it was rather bumpy in the Herc, that's for sure. In fact, most parts of me were separating from other parts of them. <laughs> it was mostly trying to prevent the stomach, the contents from separating from his body, I think. In fact, a couple of times they banked it and I separated myself from the aircraft, which was rather... <laughs> rather disturbing <laughs> or it separated itself from me so you lost your footing yes well uh, just the floor just sort of you know disappeared from beneath me it was uh, and then came back up and hit him it was, was quite liberating just briefly <laughs> <laughs> kind of like being in space until he leveled out <laughs> your astronaut moment <laughs> yes that was it they don't call it they didn't call it the vomit comet for nothing there you oh, go. That's no. the one. Yes, That's well, so well, we might talk. We might talk about my C one hundred and thirty ride in in an upcoming episode. But uh, boy, yes, it was very bumpy on that aircraft. I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> well, and it was, and it was um, totally awesome. <laughs> the lovely thing at Bowen Heads is, uh, well, what's happened now is that um, when Anatole said I've moved over to the adventure side of the airport, what's happened is that the flying school that used to have um, various other businesses kind of coming and going from it. 
all those guys have now got a donga in a, in a separate okay. sort of removed from that place. So they're going to do up the donga. And I think he said in the interview they're going to put a deck on top of the donga and uh, the guy, the, so there's the warbirds, the skydivers, the helicopters and seaplane. And they've all got their own little, you know, it's like a little community. For those who aren't up on the uh, colloquialism, what's a donga? What's a, you don't know what a donga is? I think the, oh. um, I think the British call them a porter cabin. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a little portable building that they yeah. use. Often they use them um, for, yeah, portable housing, working on road gangs and things like that. Yeah. So they've got this donger and um, Anat- when Anatole said, so we've got the donger over there and I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it looks like it's been on the roadside for a little while. And he said, no, we're going to paint it. We're going to do it up. And they're going to put the sun deck on top. And cool. I think I can't wait to go and see what they do to it because – as we were sitting there doing the interview, we were just sitting on the grass behind the hangar and um, the parachutists were just fluttering down. I think at the start of the interview you can hear this fluttering noise and it's the parachutists coming down to land beside us. I think if you were going out there looking for, for a day out, you certainly find enough to fill your activities, you know, enough activities to fill your afternoon. Anatole said he gets a lot of guys who have started flying, maybe done a few hours and then never got back to it for whatever reason, and then they come back and do the, the wife buys the um, the flight for them and then they fall in love with it. And I um, went to get him some lunch and when I came back he just landed with this young guy and he laughed as he got out of the aeroplane. He goes, there's another one, wants to go and get his licence. No. And this young guy got out grinning like a split watermelon. He was loving it. Well, what Anatole needs to do now is set up a uh, flying school right next to the Nanchang and he could uh, make himself uh, a, a rather wealthy man. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go, Anatole. When you're listening to this, I'll, I'll I'll take a cut just for that idea, mate. <laughs> you just you just want a free flight in the Nanchang. Yes. Well, you know, hey, we can do that. <laughs> well, that's excellent, Kathy. Now, uh, now we have to come up with another uh, another assignment for you. What's uh, what, what can we do next? Um, look, maybe I'll go in a Japanese something. We'll have to get you up in a zero. Tora, tora, Well, that's excellent, Kathy. And I think we should mention too that that, uh, that catchy music uh, that put in there was by, now was it CC Martini? CC Martini. Isn't she good? Wow, that sounded awesome. And, uh, I love it. Do you happen to know that person, Kathy? Yes, I raised her. I taught her everything she knows. <laughs> she's my niece and she lives in LA and she's a hip-hop chick. Latest album's called Girl Scout. And my favourite song is Pool Party and Worst Boyfriend. You're the worst boyfriend I've ever had. Yes, well, we wow. won't be splicing that one into the edit, Kathy, I can tell you, but uh, Pool Party was pretty cool. So, uh, And we should point out to the listeners there that uh, that's Kathy's first audio editing job and I think she did a sensational job at it. Yeah, she <laughs> did great. Yeah, In fact, Kathy, I think I should send you more editing to do. Please do. Out here at the phone. Oh. Name. Okay. I just can't get enough of audio editing. And, uh, Kathy, have we got any more writing jobs on the horizon? I'll tell you what I did last night. It was my last night of uni. I've just finished. I've taken five years to do a two-year diploma. Oh, you're fast-tracking it. Yeah, because of the screaming kids you just heard before, screaming for icy poles. And, um, and so we had a writer's night in the city at the Vic Uni campus and James Button came and read from his book, Speechless, and Helen Garner came and spoke. And um, the students had to um, – a couple of the students did a presentation, so I got up and read some bits from my little ride on Mower's book. It was terrifying. It's all right to talk into a computer. Like, I don't have to look at you guys. I'm sitting here looking out the window. Most people think that's a good thing. Yeah, a lot of people enjoy not looking at us. Yeah, I love it. People- so I had to get up and speak in front of 150 people, and I was, I was so nervous. 
And yet I write stories for Outback magazine. They publish 90,000 copies, but I don't have to see the people reading the words. It, um, yeah, it's a very different thing when you have to face your critics. When you get immediate response, not an email three months later. That's right. And yeah, that's, that's right. And that is why I never leave the studio, Cathy. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand it, Steve. Okay, Cathy, tell our listeners where they can find you online. Twitter, Carl Scribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E. Facebook, Cathy Mexted Writing and Photography. www.kathymexted.com.au I don't know where else, Steve. That's about. That's enough, isn't it? Surely. Yeah. Well, Kathy, uh, thanks very much for all your uh, help with the podcast this year. We really appreciate it, and uh, I'm sure that we will uh, find uh, lots more projects for you in the new year. Yeah, that'll be great. Now that I know how to edit, I'm all over it. Thanks for having me this year. It's been fantastic fun. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun. A lot of outtakes, but they've all been fun too. So give me a great excuse to get out of the house. The children <laughs> don't mind being locked up for the four hours that I'm gone. <laughs> In the basement. Husband left the country while I was out podcasting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he left the country and we abducted you to be a podcaster. So there you go. Okay, we know it's a big year for you coming up in uh, 2013, Kathy, but we'll talk about that the next time we talk to you. So uh, we'll catch you then. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Mike Dunn, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Mate, you're a helicopter pilot. Was that how you started? Did you always want to do rotary? Uh, I started flying aeroplanes. I was always interested in helicopters, but um, I uh, got started in planes and um, and then uh, moved into choppers later on. Okay, so how many hours did you do in, in fixed wing? Oh, only about 150. Okay. Mm. Flying what kind of aircraft? Cessnas, uh, Warriors, and um, a few variations of that. Yeah, so... Was that here at Moorabbin or where'd you start? Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, yeah, I trained here in the on the airport. Okay. Mm. And then how'd you progress across to Rotary? I uh, did a trial introductory flight at the helicopter group about 15, 16 years ago, something like that, and sort of uh, got hooked. It was just too good to let go. Mm. Or did you start on R22 or that would have um, been a Hughes or a Bell? Uh, my first lesson was in a uh, Hughes 300, but I did half my license in the 300 and half in the 22. Once you had the license, how did you progress from there up to the turbines? Uh, well, it's just one of those things you just sort of chip away at it over the years and get a little bit of an opportunity here and there to fly a turbine and and then before you know it you've got experience in one and people are paying you to do it so uh the the helicopter we're in today was uh as355 is it the single engine squirrel it's an as350 okay uh, squirrel so it's the single engine you're right about that and uh it's powered by a uh, honeywell lycoming and uh, which is a, a bit different to the normal squirrel. Normally they're powered by a uh, turbo mecha engine, yep. which is a French engine. This has got the American, the American one. How much time have you had flying squirrels? I haven't uh, added it up lately, but it'd be over a thousand hours just on squirrels. Right. Hmm. So total, where are you at? Uh, around five thousand. Okay. And what kind of uh, helicopters have you got? Oh, oh what, what ones have you flown? Okay. The Hughes 300 and the 22 were um, training machines. Then I moved on to a 44, a uh, Bell Jet Ranger, the stretch version, which is the Long Ranger. Ranger, Then uh, Squirrel, EC-120, EC-130, which are the sort of flash-looking squirrels. And uh, Hughes 500, the uh, Twin Squirrel, and um, the Augusta 109 uh, Power. Yeah, that's a very nice aircraft. Mm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful helicopter. Have you got any preference? Well, it depends on the job you're doing. I mean, if we just wanted to go and go for a little burn and have some fun, there's nothing wrong with taking the Jet Ranger. It's a fantastic uh, yep. 
it's a pilot's helicopter, you know. It's it's simple, straightforward, it's reliable. You know, it's like getting in a your faithful old car, turn the key and away you go. And it keeps running all day. Today we did a, a film job and um, we were hovering out of ground effect a lot. So even though there was only uh, three passengers on board, it was good to have the, uh, the power of the squirrel to do it. We could have done that job in the Jet Ranger, but some of the setups of shots would have been a bit harder. You know, when you're doing balloons, you really you don't have translational lift most yeah. of the time. So you need to be able to hover out of ground effect. Yeah, I noticed we were doing that a bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, the, the the extra horsepower is good, and, uh, and that's what the squirrel's good for. But if we're going uh, in inclement weather and have to get from A to B, then the Augusta is your machine. Yeah. It's IFR and all the rest of it. That single pilot IFR? Ah, uh, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I take it you've got all your IFR. No, I haven't, haven't done my IFR stuff, but um, I've done a co-pilot instrument rating. In helicopters, it's not as common, uh, general aviation helicopters, to have your instrument rating. Uh, I only did my co-pilot uh, instrument rating to support the night vision goggle work that I um, required to do. How much time have you had with the NVGs? Um, it's coming up on about 50 hours. Pretty heavy on the head? Uh, yeah, there's a bit extra weight there. You feel it uh, once you've been flying a few hours. You can certainly feel all the hot spots on your uh, <laughs> from your helmet. And but um, they're really good technology and uh, used properly. And quite useful. What kind of uh, operations have you been using the NVGs with? Uh, well, we've got a um, we've got long-term contracts with the state government in um, Victoria, and uh, they want to use it for night reconnaissance and uh, aerial incendiary, yeah, fire spotting, and all that. Uh, well, yeah, spotting not so much, um, more so to see the progress of a, of a running fire, to map it at night, um, as I said, general reconnaissance, and, um, and incendiary is where we actually create backburns by yeah. dropping uh, potassium permanganate uh, triggered uh, you know, uh, by uh, glycol. Is it like as little flare containers or is it a... Yeah, spray? they're little ping pong balls, basically, <laughs> and the machine crunches them out in the back. Okay. So you take the seats out and put them in? Yep, yep, that's what that machine will be configured for daytime um, aerial incendiary today, actually. Okay. So. Yeah, I noticed it's got the Firebird 302 on it. That's your state mm. call sign, yeah? Yeah. We have four squirrels uh, in Victoria on forestry and firefighting contracts and one in New South Wales. And Are they all based here? Um, no, well, during the, the bulk of the year they are, but uh, during the summer they spread out a bit. So we have a Moorabbin, a uh, Bairnsdale, a uh, Shepparton, used to be Vanilla, and um, uh, a Linda at Mount Daninong, and the other one's out at Bankstown. Yeah. So uh, how long has HaliServe been in operation? Uh, well, it'll be about uh, 10 years now. I joined it when it had been running about four years, I think. And you're now uh, Chief Pilot and General Manager, yeah? That's right. You get to do all the fun. Yeah, well, um, the piloting side of it becomes a little more part-time when you, um, you know, have to do the management. So I, I sort of tend to just um, do check and training, uh, helping fill gaps on the roster when it comes to the uh, forestry and the firefighting, and I do the um, night vision goggle work, as I said. It's it's not a it's not a full-time pilot job as such uh, once you become chief pilot, but still good fun. And uh, you're just concerned with other aspects of the business, you know, the systems that, uh, you know, maintain the the safety of the operation and, of course, the administration and um, development of the business. It's the sides they don't really teach you about when you do the chief pilot course, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's right. It's um, 
they, they, they do give you, you know, a bit of guidance here. You need to have all your systems in place. I think, it's, I think the chief pilot thing is, is really not that bad if you uh, like systems. If, yeah. you, if, you're gonna, if you're willing to put systems in place, then you, know, you can do the job pretty easily really it's just uh, making sure that you stay on top of it yeah if you're if you're a bit more uh, seat of the pants then uh, it's probably not the right thing for you that's right especially not in today's environment no no i mean and, and a lot of pilots uh, just don't want to be bothered you know with the management side of it they're just happy to fly and some days you can see you can see why but generally it's um it's quite rewarding yeah, when you're buried under the paperwork and, mm. and everyone else is getting the to log the hours and you just want to get out and fly on a beautiful day that's right yeah well, mate, thank you very much. We had a great time this morning. Yeah, no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah. We've got lots of good pictures there, so uh, hopefully they'll come up good. Yeah, no, it all went pretty well. Mm. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, see you next time. Thanks, mate. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. And welcome back. Boy, what a full episode, Grant. We've had uh, journos, we've had aeros, we've had uh, comment on the state of the defence industry. Uh, boy, what else? Helicopter flying? Gee whiz. Mate, I think we've got something for everyone in this one. Well, Grant, uh, somebody else who's probably got some stuff for us will be the postie. Here he is. Oh, the dreaded midnight postie. Ah, uh, yes, the most enduring sound effect PCDU has, I think. <laughs> you know, I think people out there in the big wide world will think that posties in uh, Australia work all hours. Well, I know they're pretty hardworking folks, uh, but yeah, they're not out here at midnight. It's just we've got one very special delivery guy. Yeah, that's right. I wish he was working a bit more often, Grant. There's a bit of a studio gear I ordered recently from Canberra to Melbourne. It took uh, eight days. Eight days? Eight days. Um, hang on. Uh, is this now in the modern days, or did you order it back 100 years ago when yeah. uh, it was the Pony Express? Yes, no, well, yes, it was uh, here in uh, 2012, mate. Oh, mate. Yeah, well, it may have been in 2012, but uh, obviously the delivery system was still back in the 50s. I'll tell you what, when I'm ordering more gear that has lots of blinking and flashing lights for the studio that needs to get here, stat. Oh, mate, express, post, pay the extra and get the, uh, you know, the overnight bag. Oh, yeah, well, you know, my, my Dutch streak. 
kicks in then, mate. And- ah, well, you have only yourself to blame, dude. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Here we have some simulated printed listener email, Grant. Boy, we, I tell you what, uh, we got a, a lot of great feedback uh, from our last episode uh, with Serge. Um, all of it positive except for one or two. Uh, but then again, that's to be expected. I mean, Serge, I think he's a pretty controversial character. In fact, uh, talking to some of our contacts, I'd say that's uh, very much the case. He uh, calls it as he sees it. And, uh, well, not controversial, but, uh, you know, he's uh, someone who doesn't mind telling you what he thinks, regardless of what you might think. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so thanks for those of you. Uh, a lot of great comments on the Facebook page there, and uh, hopefully it's uh, got a few book sales, at least according to the emails that we've got. It looks like it will. And one of our airline friends, uh, you know, wasn't too uh, thrilled with the way uh, he spoke. I guess uh, a little bit disparagingly about his own time working in the airlines, and uh, you know, I can see how that would grate against uh, heavy transport aircraft pilots. And uh, as I've long said, had I ever been a uh, an Air Force pilot, well, uh, I wouldn't have been looking at fast jets. I can tell you, I'd have been uh, <laughs> looking for C one thirties or C seventeens or see somethings I see that five go by yes okay a selection of listener emails that have come in over the last uh, few weeks that's to of course uh, plain crazy down under at gmail.com and Grant this one comes from Daniel Pearson now Grant he actually wrote to us looking for some information about where he could find out about uh, the latest aviation events and air shows and uh, Grant you pointed him to uh, Alan Van Page's uh, Australian air shows page on Facebook which uh, Alan uh, to his credit keeps updated uh, quite often that's right mate it uh, it's all about air shows on that page not about fly-ins or gatherings or things like that. It's publicly accessible. Uh, air shows go up, have a flight line, have a display, things like that. So while you may not have a uh, Cessna 150 fly-in, you will have uh, events ranging from Avalon through to uh, various uh, smaller events around the, the country and some large ones as well. It's a, it's a pretty good page and a great place to go and find what's going on. And if you don't see what you know is out there, by all means, post it and let everyone know. Now, uh, Daniel also had a lot of really nice things to say about the show and uh, uh, in fact Grant he's only a recent listener in the last month or two and he's gone back and downloaded the entire back catalogue so uh, Grant I think the studio audience yes that's right well done Daniel and don't worry, Daniel, the guys with the straight jacket are on the way. Absolutely, absolutely. We don't pay for any counselling. No, no, we can't afford that. We can barely afford our own. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, Daniel says here is that he'd like to see us putting out a few more episodes, uh, perhaps a bit more often, and uh, is offering a bit of help any way that he can. Now, I must say, folks, we've had quite a few um, emails that asking the question about, you know, hey, guys, you only put a show out once a month or so lately, and, uh, you know, is there anything we can do to help? Well, I, I guess um, as much as we appreciate that, I'm not going to tell you, we would love to get shows out more often than we do. Um, and we know that uh, when the shows were in their earlier stages, yeah, we did used to put them out a lot quicker. But to make the show in the way that we make this show, it's not it's not a podcast, obviously, that we just uh, sort of record in one shot. We, we generally, you know, record interviews, store them. It's not uncommon to have an interview recorded and uh, stored for, you know, uh, several weeks and maybe even a month or two. Uh, it just depends on when we've got time to edit it down and get it spliced into a show and try to work this all around our day jobs. You know, it just takes a lot of time and, you know, it frustrates us. Don't forget also that we make segments for other shows as well we make the airplane geek segment every week i mean that's that takes us about three hours on a sunday night to put that one together for a little eight minute segment just to give you an idea and uh, we still do a bit of work for um, our friends over there at flight time radio so so that's why the shows haven't been coming out uh, as often as we would have liked and obviously as you would have liked we've tried to compensate a little by letting them run a bit longer this show's uh, ticking up towards two hours and you know we hope that uh, even though they, they don't come out as often then maybe uh, you can spread the listening of each show over one or two days perhaps depending on what you're doing but uh, for those of you that are 
uh, looking uh, to uh, offer us any help, I tell you what I could use some help with. And uh, Grant, we're just going to put it out there. I could use some help with editing. <laughs> it's a big part of the show, folks. Yep. Now, we generally work on a ratio here. And, you know, I've been doing this now for, uh, what, Grant, about four years, a bit over four mm-hmm. years. Yep. The general ratio is about three to one. So for every one minute of audio that's recorded, it takes about three minutes to process it. Uh, for me, that's about five to one. And I'm still not getting it as near good as Steve uh, does it himself in as quick a time because he's more in the groove than I am. So I don't really mind if, if somebody would like to help us out with editing now, the pay won't be great. In fact, uh, you can have as many, <coughs> you can have as many zeros on your pay packet <laughs> as Grant and I have on ours. But uh, obviously, if you would like to help us out with, uh, with the production side of things, that's that's something I could really help. So if you know how to use, uh, well, I edit this show using Adobe Audition 3, but you can use GarageBand or Audacity or anything you like, uh, and you'd, be, you'd like to have a shot at helping us out, you uh, will have to be proficient at it and produce it to a standard that I'm happy with, but um, I'm also happy to help you uh, train yourself along the way. Um, and of course, we know, Grant, we've got some listeners that know a lot more about editing than I do. So uh, if anybody would like to help out with that, I'd be very appreciative for that. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if he lets me do editing occasionally here and there, then uh, yeah, most of you guys should be able to get away with it. No problem. Of course, uh, there's more that goes into it than just the editing, of course, although that's a huge part of the show, naturally. There's lots of other ways you can help, ranging from uh, donating some cash. Yes, that's always an option. But uh, also, if you know some people who might be looking at uh, interesting ways to advertise and promote and get to an aviation industry, send them our way. We're getting some good results from uh, the people who are putting out some messages on the show, and uh, we're happy to help send that around to others as well. So lots of ways you can help, and the more you help, the more chance we have of getting more shows out with more great content. You know, this show is all about community. That's what we've tried to do right from the very start. And we try and, uh, you know, keep the show as broad as possible when it comes to uh, covering as much of the aviation uh, scene in this part of the world as we can. But it's all about community. So if you'd like to be, uh, you know, more closely involved with the community and think you can help out, well, this is what I need help with, folks. So anybody who'd like to have a shot at editing, drop me a line. Steve at southernskiesmedia.com.au. Okay, Grant, uh, what's the next uh, email we've got there? Yeah, mate, the next one we've got is Mick, a.k.a. Bomb One. Ah, uh, friend yes. Mick. Mick, Mick from the Frankston line. That's the man. We've uh, emailed back and forth a couple of times with this gentleman and had him uh, mentioned on the show a couple of times. Well, he's found another way to get mentioned, and uh, it's pointing out that, uh, first of all, he's been soul-destroying to have to listen to, hello, I'm Anthony Simmons. I've sat in the pilot seat of a B-52 bomber for two years because, you know, he hasn't, and he wishes he had. But now he also has to put up with, hi, I'm Steve Vischer, and I've flown in the back of a C-130H Hercules over Sydney Harbour. Well, guess what, Mick? It gets worse than that. I don't think you were just in the back of the C-130H, were you? No, in fact, I was on the flight deck. There you go. As it went up Sydney Harbour, Steve was on the flight deck. Sorry, Mick. He says, I know it's only going to get worse at the air show. I guess he's talking about Avalon. He says, you are very, very lucky, boys, and I hate you. Now, don't be like that, Mick. Yeah, no, come and join us and help out, and maybe you too could be people, somebody that people hate. I got to say, Mick started sending his emails a couple of uh, months back, and they're very entertaining, and I look forward to it, mate. And uh, yes, uh, he's very local here, and uh, you know, Mick, I'll tell you now that uh, I actually work on your line every second week now, so I'm sure I'll see you around somewhere. Stop by and say hello. There you go, mate. I'm only a little fella. You can't miss me in the cab of that train. Ah, no, you don't feel it at all. But uh, moving on, okay, next one there, Grant. Uh, moving on from weight and balance, uh, the next one we've got is from Rob Laurie, who's the uh, Sport Aviation Association of Australia's Chapter 1 president. And uh, he sent us a note uh, regarding the uh, RV Nation, a Facebook group, have um, 
welcomed the SAAA Chapter 1 in Sydney, and uh, they've said that uh, the best way to welcome them into the RV Nation is by liking their site on Facebook. So what he sent us is the... Uh, the link to the SAAA Chapter 1 Sydney North Facebook page and we'll put that in the show notes. So go and check it out and if you like it, by all means, click that like button and help bring them into uh, into the RV nation and in fact, just generally the uh, sport aviation world uh, online as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had uh, quite a bit to do with the SAAA this year and uh, they're a great bunch up there and uh, we want to uh, do everything we can to uh, support what they're doing. It's really grassroots aviation and uh, they do a fantastic job. That's right, mate. And it's great to hear from Rob and we're looking forward to uh, staying in touch with them. Maybe bring them on the show in the future. So uh, once again, uh, down under at gmail.com, folks. And uh, of course, you know, a lot of people uh, like to communicate with us on our Facebook page. You're most welcome to uh, go over there if you're one of the few that aren't on Facebook. Well, you know, hey. You know, privacy is dead. Jump on Facebook, get yourself an account, <laughs> and you can follow us there at uh, Plain Crazy Down Under Podcast. I don't know. They could be some of the few folks who actually have a life. <laughs> and, of course, our Twitter followers, you can follow us at PCDU. We've heard quite a few uh, messages through uh, Twitter lately too. A lot of a lot of feedback actually from the last episode came uh, via Facebook and Twitter. So uh, there you go. Yeah, the power of social media, mate, the power of social media. But you know what? I want to do a bit of a quick shout-out before we go. And that's, uh, speaking of social media, that's to a couple of other podcasts. Um, first one up uh, is the guys at the Stuck Mike Avcast, and that's uh, Carl, Len, Victoria, and Rick. Uh, yeah, thanks very much for all the uh, happy birthday wishes. Uh, yeah, really, really tickled to hear you guys uh, say that. So thanks very much. It was uh, great to get a shout out because uh, the team were actually recording on my birthday over there in the States. So, yeah, cool. Thanks, gang. Uh, really appreciated that. It's an excellent podcast, by the way, the Stuck Mike Avcast. Uh, definitely should be high on your list. Straight after us and the Airplane Geeks, yeah, and UCAP and uh, <laughs> Airspeed. And, oh, there's a lot out there. But, uh, yeah, no, this, the Stuck Mike Avcast is a great show. Really yeah. enjoy that one. And another one I'm really enjoying, and I've gone back and listened to all the episodes of both Stuck Mike Avcast and also Hangar 49. They're in the northwest part of the USA and also in Canada. And that's uh, Jim, L, and Tony. And uh, there's been a bit of banter going back and forth on their Facebook page. Uh, a bit of stuff going back and forth about the mosquito that was recently restored in New Zealand for Jerry Yagan. And that's going to be going back to the States soon. Uh, they're going to figure out some way of shipping it back without having to cut it up. And really, really enjoying uh, chatting with the guys online. And uh, they've given us a couple of shout outs. Uh, they're enjoying listening to our show. And i got to say, we're enjoying listening to theirs. So thanks, guys. Great to have you out there. Uh, really enjoy it and highly recommend folks get on and have a listen it's a lot of fun absolutely grant and uh, speaking of uh, our podcasting brethren over there in the u.s of course uh, one of the best ones on the planet is uh, airspeed by steve tupper Stephen force one of the ones he put out recently was called you don't know jack now uh, <laughs> for those of you who haven't heard it he's actually recording that with jack hodgson from the uncontrolled airspace now we, we know that jack's a private pilot and new media producer and all that sort of stuff but we didn't know much more about him but uh, it's a bit more in depth if you'd like to know a little bit more about jack hodgson then uh, steve tupper really gives him a good airspeed style grilling there and uh, <laughs> It's uh, really uh, a great episode of Airspeed. Well, they're all great, but uh, this one was uh, really good. I only listened to it uh, recently, and yeah, they obviously recorded it back at the uh, in the earlier months of uh, 2012. But uh, of course, you know, Steve's a little bit busy making a movie these days, so I think the movie kind of ate his podcast, as he said. But, uh, <laughs> That's one of his favourite phrases at the moment. But yeah, great to have a listen to it. And as Jack said, it was uh, pretty interesting to be on the other side and not to have a script and to have questions thrown at him and to actually have to come up with answers. So yeah, very very highly recommend. 
recommend it, especially if you enjoy UCAP, uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. Well worth ha- having a check out of Airspeed in general, but also this episode with Jack on it. Now, just a quick mention before we go. Now, you may remember uh, back when we were over in the US last year that I presented an interview with uh, Bill Hankins, uh, a Captain United States Air Force retired, who was uh, my host father when I was living over in the States. Just thinking of uh, Bill at the moment, a uh, very good friend from the Air Force, uh, Larry Byer, actually passed away uh, recently from some uh, heart complications. Uh, Larry Byer, for any of you who are listening up in the uh, Union, Ohio area, is a former mayor of that town, and uh, he was also in the United States Air Force, worked on the uh, Minuteman uh, missiles and was based uh, out in Kansas, I think, a uh, very uh, faithful patriot for the United States, a uh, friend of mine and a very good friend of Bill's, and uh, he'll be a very sad loss. And uh, blue skies to you, Larry. It was a pleasure knowing you. Yeah, always a shame when, when people pass on, but uh, celebrate the good and uh, remember them, and that's that's the best way to keep them alive is to uh, have good memories of them. Well, I think that just about brings this episode to a close, folks. Thanks very much for listening, and as always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. I'll tell you what, uh, Grant, there's so much more coming up. Uh, we're not going to be able to squeeze all of it into 2012, but we've got plenty of content that's going to take us right into the new year. We've got interviews with another Nanchang operator out here on, on this side of the city. We've been talking to the people at Aviation Trader about what they do. Uh, Damien Rose has been up grabbing interviews up there in Queensland, so we're looking forward to that. Ben Jones, busy over there in the West. I think he's been out uh, talking to some helicopter folks over on uh, his side of the country, so uh, there's so much more content to come up in uh, the next few episodes of Playing Crazy Down Under. And of course, uh, we're edging uh, ever closer to our 100th episode. Yeah, that's getting very close now, but uh, mate, uh, I think I may just have to tell my day job that, sorry guys, I've got to go and do a podcast. I dream. (laughs) We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, but I tell you what, if you're out there flying, well, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McHeron and Kathy Mexted. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plainecrazydownunder.com. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. still calm gorgeous warm and uh um i forgot what i was gonna say steve you have to edit that love that's okay (laughs) Uh, um, uh, and so it begins (laughs) lovely scenery you said it was a nice day also referred to as uh you know the straight jacket room but anyhow that's an outtake (laughs) thanks mate (laughs) well they come and take you away ha ha he he picture skew Picture skew. We had. Um, I don't want any more of your hyperbole. <laughs> Is that a hyphenated hyperbole? Yes. Hyper- hyphenated bowl. That's an old joke, isn't it? Yes, I think so. No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs>
got nothing to say on that, Steve. Oh, bloody hell. I thought that was a very good question, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's, from... Say any old thing you like, and I just want to look at the levels while you do it. Any old thing you like, and I just want to look at the levels while you do it. Nice one. That works. My girlfriend got um, got an email from his son at schoolies, and he said, oh, parachuting's not that scary at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go on a little road trip somewhere. Cool. I don't know where. North, I guess. Come to Cranbourne. <laughs> you used to come to Cranbourne for holidays, you told me. To the chicken farm. Have you got chickens? Actually, our next door neighbours have got chickens. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I'm a bit of a chicken. <laughs> Grant's a chicken, is he? <laughs> have they got six kids? Because my cousins, they're six cousins. Uh, well, they've got a lot of kids over there, actually, and all they do is scream at each other. They oh, breed them. A bit like, like here tonight, wasn't it? Over there. Until Nothing the- an icy pole can't fix. Is that you, Grant? What? Charlie, sit. Excuse me while I press the mute button. Eek. Kathy, bring me the knife. <laughs> I can't feed it down the line, Steve. Charlie, come here. Come here. Yeah. Here, Charlie. Here's a picture of a knife. Be afraid. Victor. Roger, yeah. Victor. Charlie. Sit. Roger. We've got Clarence, Clarence. Roger, Roger. Give us the vector, Victor. Maybe I should have spoken like that to my girls. You'll come. Sit. Let me just fire up that portable hard drive. Yeah. How many gigabytes uh, did you want to edit? Yeah. <laughs> I learned everything I know from YouTube. You were no help. <laughs> oh, zing. <laughs> God, you sound like my wife. Her name's Kathy Smackdown. as well. Yeah, there's something about, about Kathy's. Yeah, I know. Actually, Steve, you're a big help. You're always a big help. Oh, you're always there when I need you. You're kind of like Lifeline, aren't you? For <laughs> yes, I'm a podcasting Lifeline, yes. Podcasting <laughs> Lifeline. Triple O, Steve, podcasting help are us. That's it. Podcasters are us. That's it. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't. I can't get this spice out of work. Okay, stop, stop, stop creating bloopers. Stop creating bloopers. The bloopers <laughs> shall cease here. I don't know how to get the fade in, fade out. There you go. Well, oh, first, get a Mac. <laughs> I have a Mac. I've got a big Mac. Oh, oh. <laughs> I didn't know there was a McDonald's in the oil area. No, there's not. Oh, a MacBook Pro. It's great. Uh, you know, it's it's those computers that rich people have, Grant. <laughs> I've got a Mac. And, uh, Kathy, have we got any more writing jobs on the horizon? Um, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> uh, what am I doing uh, on the horizon? Because do you know what the best thing about editing is, Steve? Well, jeez, I could tell you a lot of things, but you tell me. I cut out the bloopers. Oh, real. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, no wonder it was so short. Yeah, send them over. <laughs> Ways no. to incriminate yourself and your friends. 